Pardon me, miss. Would you mind placing the bet for me? As you can see, it's terribly difficult for me to reach the table. Sure. What number would you like? Oh, the way my luck's been running. Would you pick a number for me? <laughs> I could use all the luck I can get. numbers but they pay out only 36 times now they've added an extra an extra slot yeah so they're just like taking a little more off the top just passing here you're really gonna get thrown out oh i mean this is, i'm just stating the facts no they're only worried about people who are cheating yeah. i'm not cheating <laughs> i'm just telling i'm just i'm just <laughs> stating the facts i'm being honest 
Yeah, like, like, did the record reflect that you have in fact not brought any luck since your arrival? Okay, but there's only been one roll. It keeps on going on 18. This is an age of consent. Been, look at that 318 in the last, a, like, seven rounds. That's shocking. 313s and 318s. Okay. I this is care. a full-on age of consent debate happening at the, at the blackjack table. All right, you're doing 20... time was in 1993 when I was eight years old. We stayed at MGM, which was also the rage, but Mirage was a little bit more the rage because Steve Wynn just had a little, had that Steve Wynn magic. And this was his uh, kind of first major creation. And now, what is it? It has, it has, remember, the Wi-Fi here is MGM. Well, uh, MGM owns it. Kind of very dramatic. Yeah. 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 Yeah.
Now you tie your Freedom Fest. Your entire Freedom Fest feed. I did well at the back check table playing with Yeah, no, he did plenty well. I came here. Uh, I came to Feeder Fest in 2004. Oh yeah. Yeah. So that was my first and last, my first and only trip. They're very, they're, they're very slow to come by, aren't they? They're very slow to come by. But the whole point of this thing is to tip like you're a fucking king and to drink your booze and to be treated like. a that's the whole. That's what. That's that's what it's all about. And that's why people come here. You, you're a big wig for a night. He had a system. It's pretty simple. It just Keep looks it complicated. Yeah, with exactly. all the fucking shit on the. And I don't like all the like audience participation. I like right. much more like elegant vibe. Right. I don't like when people are very rambunctious. You don't like when they're screaming and going, "Yeah, baby, that's yeah, they the." They just keep that to themselves. Right. Well, the, I feel like the, the the highest echelon of elegance is those baccarat tables in the uh, cordon d'off area where it's just like one, you know, like the high limit or high minimum, whatever. But I feel like there you have something to prove by like being with the riffraff, as long as their behavior is equally respectful. Yeah, I see. You like the medium. You like the... Uh, I don't like being... I don't... If I dare, I feel like obligated to like lose six figures and yeah. prove that I belong there. Yeah. Like the pressure I'd rather do without. Just to justify your the suite that they get, the high roller suite yeah, that, they, exactly. that, they, that they get you. Get out! Oh, that's so sad. Let's see this. Okay. I'm sorry I didn't Thank bring you. the. Uh, no, you brought, you brought the opposite. Your luck was rancid. I cast the Paul. Yeah, but I got I expedited your exit and perhaps saved you money in the long run, though. Sure. <laughs> These are the high. This is what I was talking about. Yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> These are the high rollers. These are the high rollers. Well, and I just, I'll just watch. This is for David. The, I'm gonna, if I, if like David notices some gigantic debits in my account, I'm gonna blame you for having said, "Oh, you should go into the high roller room. It's just waiting for you there." <laughs> Let's just wait. I have to get that out of my system. Okay. Yeah. Also, I have to hurry so because if my numbers come in now, right.
Right. That's when you want to kill yourself. Yes, so yes, did you just right. arrive today? I just arrived an hour ago, yeah. From I, where? From LA. I live in LA. So it's like, what, a 90-minute flight or something? It's not even. It's like 40-minute flight. Yeah, yeah. But it's the first time I've ever flown here. I've been here maybe 30 times. Oh, you've always driven? I've always driven because it's just hop in the car, four hours. It's a not, It's it's just you have the freedom of leaving whenever the hell you want. Um, How long is it to drive? Just like two hours? Four hours. Four, four hours. hours yeah. right. If there's no, if you don't go on, if you don't leave in the worst possible time, which is like Friday afternoon. Right. So you're like an inveterate gambler who's here constantly, basically. I, I mean, I, 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 it's such a. It's such a fixture of growing up in LA, if you're of a certain, you know, if you're not a dweeb, yeah. to, to, to go on the Vegas weekend with totally with the guys, with the girls, with yeah, whatever, yeah, yeah. and and so it's just it's part of this. It's like it's a whole genre of escape, the Vegas weekend. Uh huh. Um, two to three nights. The the there's a whole like I, I can plot it out. There's a there's a three act structure to the whole weekend every single time. When you're arriving, all hopes on Friday. Uh-huh. Everyone has plans on what they're going to do. Friday night, how they're going to recoup Saturday during the day, but then go hard, hard Saturday night, and then you want, if you have the time, you get that third night to just chill out a little bit, and so there's like, it's always planned. I did to see the RuPaul Drag Show live, so I I didn't bought the tickets. Oh, that's cute. He's cute. That's cute. No, I'm just kidding. I bought those kids. I'll be honest. Like my kids love the show. My kids love the show. You're a RuPaul. So let's just get on the record that Anthony's a RuPaul fanatic. I've never. Well, seen no, this is a closet fan. No, because uh, this is what happened. My kids love okay. it. I don't know if you saw, but like, I interviewed Chris Rufo when he was like doing this idiotic claim about how drag is inherently sexual. I, I just watched it last night. I have people. I didn't want to say my kids, but I was like, I have friends who make me watch it because it's actually my kids who love it. They think it's funny. Yeah. And the reason they think it's funny is because it's so fucking cringe. Like they had Nancy fucking Pelosi on the last time and we were like, oh, yeah, yeah. the queen with the ironic clap. No, I, I've been I've been on a tirade against this uh, this uh, drag queen phobia that's uh, that's been stupidly um, activated in the last uh, you know four months, basically by libs of TikTok. I wish gay culture was like it used to be. I that, wish it was like, raunchy and sexualized. And raunchy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I wish I wish everyone's getting groomed left now and it's right. Like Nobody's neutered. getting groomed. Yeah. No, like, not all those trans people with all their like phobias about abuse, and they don't ever fucking have sex. It just it's a very desexualized culture, even though they constantly talk about sex and sexual identity. There's no sex in it. It's no, just like abstract. They're, the closest they get to orgasm is when like a $500 GoFundMe donation arrives. Totally. It, it's Wait, a backlog. This? this is the... Uh, this is the Siegfried and Roy's secret garden. Do you know about Siegfried and Roy? Do you know that they were the... They, they were like, they, they, they like kind of were like the original campy Las Vegas show people, right? Yeah, they had, they did a magic show. I saw it once when I was a kid with tigers where they would like illusionists. They're illusionists. So they'd make tigers disappear, come out of the, over there. They were all tiger fanatics. Do they have like actual uh, animals yeah. here? Uh, if they don't, why are they charging money? I think money? they do. I don't really, <laughs> I, think I don't they, like they animals yeah. in captivity. Yeah, it'll bother you. That's what, yeah. but well, you know what happened? You know how their career ended after 30 one years? One of them got it. One of them attacked him. One of them at the... And, like, during the show. Off. During the show. Yeah, during yeah, the show. After 30 years. almost put his face off. And these two are like the gayest... The gayest... Like Liberace. People. They're yeah. like Liberace gay. They're Vegas legends. God, I don't know if there are any of them... Either of them is still alive, but... Uh, 
Yeah, I mean, obviously there was all this, but they were also deeply, deeply in love with their tigers. Like, no, like, they were really devoted to them. Yeah, but he didn't die, right? He just got like half his face. He didn't off. die, but it was really bad. Look it was. It was like. It Look was what a, you did. You reduced my beautiful stack to just like popper level money. Popper, you still have it. You can still sniff it, okay? The important thing is you still have something to sniff. You have some money in your hand. Do, it's I not over. Zero. And this isn't, we're not even scratching the surface of your Freedom Fest uh, honorarium. It's true, it's true. But it's a long way from the Glenn Greenwald that I was aware of in the 2000s. Uh, you know, the uh, kind of the left, salon. the salon, Glenn Greenwald. Uh, you were writing, I believe, a little bit after the time where Salon had Camille Paglia and David Horowitz, whom I just did an episode with, by the way, uh, writing at the same time. And there was this golden period of Salon where it had like an actual diversity of of, of and interesting it had, people. Like, it had good writers. It was and you know, it writers. Had, like a high level of. Now it's just, I mean, nothing more embarrassing than Salon. Like I haven't even, I can't even aware of it fucking yeah, exists. I don't even know of it. You get like a virus if you try to go on the website. Well, and also, I, the only reason I know it exists for sure is because two weeks ago, they published an article that they picked up from some viral tweet without checking. Okay. Typing that some newly enacted law that wasn't even a newly enacted law, but one enacted last year in 2021. Yeah. In Florida, required students and professors to register their political views and ideology. And it's so fucking obvious that no law would actually do that. And yet, right. Salon just published that headline, and then it caused all these people like Stephen King and all these other oh, God, actual Stephen liberal King. influencers to spread it virally all over the internet and then it was so preposterous that even CNN fact-checked it as false. Oh, God. I mean, well, it's similar to the whole, I, it sounds like what they did with the don't say gay framing, which was like... Yeah, but this is where, this is like, I mean, that was just a deceitful propagandistic title that they imposed onto the bill and then pretended that's what it really did and said. Yeah. Where this was just an outright lie about what the bill does, like a fabrication. Right. Oh, yeah. God. But that was um, all Salon. That's a, well, um, Salon's fucking... I thought they were going to go bust, and then suddenly they didn't go bust. I, I mean, was, it has, like, enough of a name that even if you just put, like, a few thousand dollars... Like, I would, I would buy it if I were going to, you know... Let's buy it. I'll, I'll go in for ten. <laughs> all right, let's do it. We, we can go. do it, and then we can just own it. We can just pop with, like, neo-Nazi propaganda. Whatever the fuck we want. We'll give... We'll, we'll just, like, a Holocaust revision. We'll give, Mon, we'll give Mo, Moke, uh, uh, Moshe a, totally. a, an entire column of race science coffee. Her and... Uh, and and, uh, Steve Saylor. Steve Saylor. Right and also the gay bodybuilder. Uh, oh, the, uh, the, uh, BAP. BAP, Bronze yeah, yeah, yeah. BAP, yeah. Bronze age fascist. Bronze. So we can have them have their own, like, Bronze. aesthetic style section. Yeah. It would be a big hit. I mean, it would, it would make way more money than whatever the... We can hire Nick Fuentes as a columnist. He got he got kicked out of the festival. I know, so he's available. <laughs> so he's available. Oh, he was going to be here? He was going to be here. He got kicked out. Because, I don't know, maybe they found some I have a friend who's very left. And she, of all the people on the right, the only people on the right she likes is Nick Fuentes. Because one of her big issues is Palestine, and he, of course, despises Israel. Oh, right. Okay. Which makes him popular in certain circles, even though it's not quite, like, driven by a pro-Palestinian instinct, but other sentiments. Right. But nonetheless, is aligned with these, like, Israel haters. And she is angry and upset that, like, all these free speech mavens and anti-cancel culture people on the right never stand up for him because he's one of the few people who touches the actual third rail, which is Israel. Right. I get what I... That, you hear that a lot, right? Like, that, that, like, that kind of loophole... 
It, it, I do agree. I want to leave Nick Fuentes aside, yeah. but like I do agree that there is this like radical inconsistency that I wrote read about before. But like it's even worse now, where that realm of the kind of like supposedly heterodox anti-cancel culture pro pro free speech right believes that all accusations of racism or homophobia or bigotry of any kind are invalid and unfair and and fabricated, except for anti-Semitism, which they see everywhere. Okay. So they're extremely sensitive. Their radar is attuned to like a hundred for any signs of anti-Semitism. Any yeah. remnant of Israel criticism instantly provokes accusations of being a Jew hater. Yeah. Whereas every other kind of racism and bigotry is immediately declared unfair and unwarranted by them. Right. There is that. There is definitely that contradiction. Well, and then, and then on top of that contradiction comes the fact that they're very willing to sanction or at least overlook what is one of the most aggressive forms of censorship, which is anti-Palestinian or pro-Israel censorship. But you never, almost never hear them raising a voice no, against don't. Palestinian professors being fired or, you know, like activist groups against Israel being silenced or otherwise right. punished. Yeah. No, that's a, that's a... A totally valid criticism. Yeah, it's a valid criticism. There's no, there's no way around that. I don't think it, I don't think it's a valid counter, like... No, it doesn't disprove it their doesn't, theory, but yeah. it makes them unreliable advocates of those principles. I mean, yeah, they're they're basically, you know, you look at like, I mean, we could, this is part of a larger conversation, but it's like, I always, I don't trust conservatives when it comes to a whole host of, a whole range, as a stupid drag queen discourse proves. Right, right. The fact that they'll just, the fact that they're just, uh, um, uh, do this whole like potpourri kind of style bunching together of the real problem with a bunch of ancillary just cultural kind of window dressing problems right. that aren't actually problems because right. they don't understand them because it's not their it's not their bag they don't know the last thing about gay culture exactly. because they're culturally dead and people. it's like the most anti-intellectual sort of like method to seize on some like my 17 year old nephew who's Brazilian right yesterday was telling me he believes there's all this racism everywhere in the US and I asked him for his evidence and he started citing videos that he saw online of like black people of white people being you know racistly aggressive toward black people right and I was trying to explain to him that that's not evidence in a country right. of 350 million people and that's what a lot of them do they just seize on you know well, bad behavior like, yeah. by a particular group yeah and it's very inflammatory and they do have bad behavior by every group so you, you just constantly like there used to be those blogs those right wing blogs in the early 2000s during the Bush years every time like a Muslim would do something violent they would you know focus on it right well, that, now, yeah. you know and yeah of course Muslims engage in violence but if you only focus on that to the extent that everyone else you're going to create this distorted picture of Muslim. Right, that's why Libs of TikTok is in that, in the category of that kind of like, it's like, it's like, it's the slot, same, it's like the slot machine where a, a version of racial, like, you know, police, police violence, uh, uh, like, it's the same sort of thing. If you're like watching a video of a police, of a, an arrest gone wrong, and, and that one little clip is going to lead to a net, like a conclusion about this massive systemic problem. Exactly. It's the same sort of thing as uh, watching a, a, a Mexican drag queen at, uh, you know, La Quintera Taco with her, have her fucking uh, uh, cantaloupe yeah. pop out onto somebody's margarita, and it's like, this isn't even a, this isn't even a sec, this is just a stupid low-rent brunch. That, and, yeah, yeah, this yeah. Is not, and also, there's that other inconsistency, which is uh, they were waving the banner of parental rights and parental autonomy when it came to not teaching kids in school 
critical race theory, right. but then suddenly parents who want to take their kids to drag shows or who want to get their kids treatment for gender dysphoria ought to be prosecuted as, as abusers. Right. Like what happened to parental autonomy? Yeah, parents should be allowed to groom their children. Yeah, exactly. I mean, right? Well, that, that, yeah. We all groom our children. I'm gonna make clear that, oh, okay. that was you're not, you're who's the who's the coolest billionaire right now in your view? Welcome, welcome to the casino. I see you've been enjoying some roulette. That was our buddy Fyodor's favorite game. Mr. Fyodor Dostoevsky loved to play roulette. Some would say he was addicted like hell to the game. Guy lost all his money several times, had to beg Fred's for loans, had to write long letters to women apologizing like a silly buffoon. Call Gamblers Anonymous. But how can you call anything a degenerate addiction when it moves a mind to create crime and punishment? To conceive and create crime and punishment. Give credit to the casino where credit is due is all I'm saying. Fyodor claimed he had a system. Not just between you and me. There's no such thing as a system. A so-called system is just a story you make up to glorify your good luck. So you feel like you earned it. Like most lifelong gamblers, some would say addicted, but I would say lifelong, Fyodor started with a huge win. It was like 40 grand in today's money. Was Fyodor the kind of person to ascribe an event like that to being a lucky bitch? No. He's a novelist, so of course, he needed a system. He thought there must be some kind of invisible order to the chaotic patterns of chance, because he had an imagination. And that this invisible order smiled on the player who doesn't freak out. His system was a fantasy of absolute emotional self-control. That was his system. He wagered all his money that you could beat the odds if you simply chose not to be flustered by them. And he did this many times. I don't know if his system was designed to flatter his virtues or flatter his vices. I do know we have a bunch of letters from him justifying his losses and they sound pretty insane. But we also have the idiot and crime and punishment and crime and punishment. You want a system, here's a system. It's the game itself, which uses math to give the casino an edge. Where Fyodor was playing, the roulette system was designed to give the casino a 2.6% edge, or something like that. But those wheels only had one zero, and at some point a second zero was added, the double zero, so the edge was now 5.2%, and Apparently nobody complained, so now we've got people adding a third zero slot with a little Mirage logo on it while keeping the rest of the payouts all the same. Make of this what you will. 
showers used to be more intense, toasters used to last forever, and roulette used to pay better odds. So far, I only hear one filthy Armenian complaining. Oh, speaking of ethnicities, here's our oldest blackjack dealer in the casino. The only one who's been with us since the day we opened. Here she is right now, Mrs. Chong. You seem scared. Come on, it looks like the life has been drained from your eyes. You must be one of those people who are susceptible to racial stereotypes about the cooler Asian dealer. Well, I'm gonna tell you a little secret. On Tuesday nights like this, Mrs. Chong deals out so many winning hands that the regulars have started calling her Cha-Ching Chong. Cha-Ching Chong. Say that nickname in your head a few times and I think you'll forget all about racial stereotypes. Blackjack is a friendlier game than roulette, if you play strategically. Less than 1% edge to the casino. In fact, our edge in blackjack is so thin that professionals who are capable of counting cards can beat us at our own game. To beat the house at its own game, you either need to cheat or you need photographic memory. And we call that cheating too and kick you out if we catch it. There's another interesting detail about blackjack. In blackjack, the house gets an advantage because you go first. Going first means you can bust before the dealer has a chance to bust. That is our edge in blackjack. Just thought you should know. Our edge in craps is also pretty small if you play conservative, you know craps the huge table with the dice and all those outcomes you can bet on. Snake eyes, heart aid. They make movies out of the bets you can make at craps. And people go on crazy runs at craps. They can roll the dice dozens of times without landing on a single seven. And then they think they have a system, a way of tossing the dice that influences how they land. And if they know the phrase crap shoot, they tend to forget it when they're playing craps. And if you don't like craps, we got Baccarat. And if you don't like Baccarat, we got all these slot machines you can yank mindlessly, no strategy at all. And if machines are not your thing, well, we got a sports book right here where you can play the men or the women or the ponies. Pick some games, evaluate the humanity, the relative humanity, and place a bet. And all you gotta do is be right 52.7% of the time, and you come out ahead. Some people can do it. Probably not you, but some people can. Just between you and me. Sometimes I think it's crazy what kind of business I'm part of at the casino. At some point in history, we convince people that if they just hand over their money, but slowly, it would be fun. That's the entire entertainment. Just handing over your money in interesting intervals. But that is action, baby. That's action, baby. That's action. We invented a new kind of action, and it's available to anyone. A place where the stakes are always high enough. A place where your life never runs out of meaning. 
no matter how old and decrepit you are. So long as you have a little bit of money in your pocket, of course. Where was I? Shit. Anyway, that's what we invented. And all by rigging the odds. Just enough that you still want to beat them. That little 1%, 2% edge. And look what came out of it. These beautiful fountains, the fancy rooms you're staying in, the sculptures, the volcano, the oxygen, the buffets, anything you want at any hour, the clubs, uh, the pools, the Cirque du Soleil, the men of action and the women of style. Take away the scam and it all disappears. And all that's left here is the old Mormon fort. What's that? Oh, you say uh, gamblers are mostly fatzos and flip-flops now? You say hot James Bond types in suits don't spend much time yelling hit me anymore? How about we get you a cocktail on the house, huh? What would you like? Aperol spritz? Espresso martini? Lots of bougie bitches drinking espresso martinis these days. Because God forbid a woman should have a coffee drink that's under $17. Oh, I almost forgot your tickets to tonight's show. Glenn Greenwald at the casino. Glenn Greenwald, author, most recently of Securing Democracy, My Fight for Press Freedom and Justice in Bolsonaro's Brazil, and the bestseller, No Place to Hide, Edward Snowden, the NSA, and the U.S. Surveillance State. He runs a very popular substack at greenwald.substack.com and he lives in Rio with his husband David Miranda to whom we wish a speedy and complete recovery from his recent medical setback. Glenn Greenwald is a man who hates cheating as much as we do and he knows how to spot it at the highest levels and even if none of his current friends believe him when he spots a cheat he never ever backs down. I can't speak for any other casinos, but when Glenn Greenwald accuses someone on my side of cheating at the highest levels, well, I appreciate that very much because we know he's not trying to destroy the house. He likes to play here. We know he's just trying to keep things fair. And we appreciate that because our system depends on trust and it's a pretty third world fucking casino that doesn't have any Glenn Greenwald to keep it honest. So let me take you up to a suite right now where the conversation is about to continue and you'll hear all about the origins of Glenn Greenwald, how he became who he is, how he got into gambling, uh, his real feelings about Donald J. Trump, the gay scene, how to spot a real Russian agent, and how he learned to stand up for the underdog and play the long shot because that's the only way to hit a jackpot. Speaking of which, before I let you in, I am gonna have to take a look at your player's card. How's your experience been among the libertarians here? Well, they're not really entirely libertarians. I was actually surprised that there's this like contingent of old style kind of, I would describe them more as conservative. Like yeah. I went to a dinner last night with several of what they're calling VIPs. 
at this conference, and I was sitting next to Steve Forbes, who probably may or maybe of course no, no, I know, I yeah, know quite like well. Yeah, <laughs> president in the mid nineties. Yeah, on a flat tax. Yeah, fifteen percent or something. Right? Yeah, fourteen percent or something, and I then remembered his whole life story, which is his father Malcolm Forbes inherited from his father the whole Forbes dynasty and then turned it into some kind of empire through investments and lived this extreme life of flamboyant consumption with private jets and chateaus in France and um, private planes called Capitalist Tool and he was best friends with uh, no thanks um, with people like Elizabeth Taylor and when he died a gay journalist Michelangelo Cigarelli outed him Mike, uh, Malcolm Forbes because for like at last eight years of his life he just said fuck it and like started get quote unquote getting into motorcycles which meant wearing leather gear and driving around New Jersey with his 26 year old boyfriend I didn't know Malcolm Forbes was gay yeah he was gay and everybody knew it but kept it a secret even though he was very heavily active in Republican politics at the yeah. time when Republican politics was you know aggressively anti-gay so Steve Forbes inherited tens of millions, probably hundreds of millions of dollars from his dad. Yeah. Which is how he was able, for example, to fund his 1996 presidential campaign with, I think, like $40 million of his own money and another $30 million in 2000. And when I sat down next to him with two of his friends at this table, the first 15 minutes was consumed by him complaining vehemently about property taxes in New Jersey mm-hmm. and how the Democrats had increased property taxes and he was super annoyed by that yeah. and this is you know I felt like I'd been jettisoned into a time capsule from the 1950s with just these old like white right wing industrialists monopoly mustaches yeah, and yeah, top hats yeah and, just uh, sitting around like with all their grievances about taxes and Democrats and spending. Yeah. So that, to me, the word libertarian, I suppose it applies in some, like, theoretical sense that, um, you know, they're against government spending, and but they don't care about what, to me, are the hallmarks of libertarianism of civil liberties and anti-militarism. And maybe they care about it in some ancillary way, but it's really about keeping taxes low for rich people. Well, yeah, the, the, I mean, the Forbes types have their, their, uh, their uh, priorities, and it's that. It's a, a boring-ass economic uh, yeah, priorities, yeah. And, and, you know. Yeah, it's just, above all else, just boring. Like, sitting around right, rich people whine about having to pay taxes. Yeah, it's, it's, it's terribly boring. It's only fun when they start to, you know, I like rich people like Steve Wynn, who created this beautiful hotel. Yeah. And, and who has been booted from his own empire because he grabbed a little secretary ass. Uh-huh. Are you familiar with his case? Yeah, I mean, I, well, yeah, it was like one of the... It was before Me Too, right? It was... No, it was... Dur- well, it was a victim of the early it was Me during Too. Me too. It was during Me Too. Uh-huh. It was totally in the... It was in the stride, in high stride of Me Too, as yeah. I recall the timeline. Yeah. Uh-huh. So he like totally... Uh, and it was like a secretary of his since the 70s or something, from if I remember correctly. Right. Like for 30 years... And suddenly it had, it was unbearable. And he's like the most, I mean, you know, he's, he's, he's really want the author of modern Vegas in a way. Like I have to say, else. I mean, I have been here, I think twice before and I like gambling. I think I had a good time here both times, but this time I really saw the city in a different light. It's, it's spectacular. I mean, it's really extraordinary. And the thing I like best about it is it doesn't take itself seriously. We were walking through Caesars today and just that, incredible design part of the shopping mall is is beautiful and so yeah I really have so much more respect for the people who built Las Vegas 
And I think that early Me Too hysteria tracked really well what happened after George Floyd, where nobody could question or dissent in any way after right. the George Floyd uh, murder from the orthodoxy and, and dogma that arose as a result. The same thing happened with Me Too. No, everyone was petrified of questioning even the most obvious unjust injustice where people got their lives and reputations ruined over arguably inappropriate but trivial conduct. Including even liking the wrong posts. I mean, that's been part of the... Some people got their, their careers killed by liking the wrong posts. Yeah, or just like dating efforts of people that... Right, were, clumsy dates. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's the scary type, but it's also true. Yeah. So, what's your history with gambling? I mean, when did you get into it? For, when did you first... When was the first time you ever gambled? It's it's well, I come from a family of gamblers, so Florida style. Yeah, my father riverboat, um, not riverboat, but no, he had a bookie, so okay. he would bet uh, each weekend on football games primarily. That's my favorite thing to do. I think all, overall gambling wise is bet on football. Yeah, I used to love it. I, as soon as I turned eighteen, I started betting with him. I used to, you know, what? Oh, he, did, he had this like he was an accountant, so he kept his betting his uh, record very very meticulous mm-hmm. and I think that was part of the fun for him and uh, I think mostly it was about just making the games more interesting like giving every game some sort of rooting component um, but also my grandfather used to smuggle me into the track like the horse races oh yeah that, so did mine yeah oh he did we have a but okay yeah go continue yeah so I've just been instilled with the virtues of gambling mm-hmm. you know from the time yeah right. and then also being in Florida yeah we would go on those off coast cruises or fly to the Bahamas and, and go to casinos there so I've been gambling or around gambling since I'm I'm young and I always love casinos um, both my brother and I have a uh, difficulty exercising a lot of discipline that once you go into the casino, you you can't leave. I've actually been impressed with my ability to be restrained on this trip. I'm not really sure why. What's I mean, your wildest? What's the? What's the? Do you have like a crazy trip story? Like the like the time you got your you lost your shirt or you won a shirt? Mm, no, it's more just like time spent. Um, you know, I'll spend, you know, I could spend easily 14 or 16 hours just sitting at a blackjack table without uttering a single word to anybody, which is how I prefer it, and just not yeah. moving. Um, I've never lost insane amounts of money, in part because only in the last few years did I have lots of money to lose that would be shocking. Right. Um, and fortunately, I, I live in a place where there is no gambling. I'm very grateful for that. Because There's no gambling in Rio? No, not in Brazil. Anywhere in Brazil. You gamble with your life, though, don't you? Isn't, yeah, the, isn't that, each flavela its own casino, in a sense, where you're gambling with your mm, life? I wouldn't go times. that far. I think, like, the dangers for me have been more from, you know, work-based and, and work-related than just, like, standard street crime, especially because the work that we did required us to have security against political violence, but it also ends up insulating you from street violence as well. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I haven't really felt... Oh, it insulates you from... Your being an anti-Bolsonaro insulates you from street violence? Well, the fact that we had so many death threats and just, like, constant physical threats everywhere in public required us to get Uh, serious armed security. I did, though... I was victimized by a violent crime last year. I was at a farm that I was about six days away from purchasing. We were about to close on this farm. I was one of the farm where I would just get up every morning and take care of chickens and mm-hmm. pigs and rabbits, and that's what I was doing. I totally loved it. Fresh eggs. Yeah. Oh, you I don't mean, eat I don't eat the vegan. eggs, but yeah, yeah we, I, I really I don't like stealing eggs from chickens. I feel <laughs> it's not yours to take. Oh. Um, but I'm not judging you. Um, but I mean, you know, but you've adopted children. Correct. 
What's, what's the difference? Well, because there are the people who didn't really want those eggs. Oh, okay. So. How do, maybe the chickens would fucking hate their eggs. They seem to, what if the they chickens seem hate to be nurturing. Eggs? The hens seemed very interested in nurturing oh, okay. those eggs to birth, and they were pecking whenever anyone tried to steal their eggs. I don't so. want them to groom their eggs, though. I mean, I feel like we need to. society needs some oversight over those eggs. I, actually, getting involved with chickens made me realize how much of our wisdom as humans comes from... Uh, people raising chickens because there's so many cliches like the hen and the roost and yeah, um, yeah. hen packed and don't count chickens order. before they hatch yeah so many like good old hen, yeah hen packed is quite <laughs> yeah people have just been and I realized like I, there were roosters who were hen packed where like the, the hen would come over <laughs> and be super aggressive um so yeah, I don't know what I was. No, we were, we were talking about your oh the bilingual crime. So I well, I, yeah, well, I was at, I was at this farm that I was about to buy, and it was the day before my birthday. So my husband and my kids were supposed to come that night, and at the last minute, chose not to. Uh, I was there with one armed security guard who was an off-duty police officer, and five armed men invaded the uh, farm. I was very relieved to see right away that they were there for money and not for political motives, mm-hmm. and held this hostage for. About an hour while they like ransacked the place and um, yeah, it was pretty pretty aggressive, pretty severe. But you know, in Re- that was actually not even in Rio. So was that did that? I mean, did that scar your feelings about Brazil? And like, was that a traumatic experience, or were you kind of like used to some, the, the idea of something like that happening already? The problem was I was the because I was there with the police officer, and they know that it's extremely common for criminals to kill police officers. Police officers die at a higher rate than even U.S. soldiers in the height of the Civil War in Baghdad. Jeez. So my big concern, and they were really mistreating him. They made him lay on the floor the entire time. They had kicked his ribs until they broke. They were putting guns to his head the entire time, threatening to blow his head off, all those sorts of things. So it really fell on me to kind of be the one who had to manage them and stay calm. And I think that helped a lot. Not, I mean, he, he ended up having to take like a two month psychiatric leave because he was very traumatized. I did. end. I might originally, I was like, fuck these assholes. I'm going to buy this farm. But there was no, I realized there was no way to ever see that farm again. And, and without the stench of that, experience. that experience. Yeah. That sucks. Yeah. So we were talking about your gambling history. Um, and we have a lot of similarities biographically. We're both born on March 6th. Yep. Oh, really? The same we birthday. share a birthday? Yeah. I'm a few years younger than you, but that's amazing. I um, thought we were I thought literally I thought we were the same exact age and I thought like we I'm 34. Being, How old are you? Oh shit, I'm 37. All right. So okay, I'm a yeah. little older because right. I thought you might have been a sister from another mister because like we have this not only do we have, were we born on the same day, both our dads are accountants. Mine's mine's an also accountant. Uh huh. Your parents split up around the same time my parents split up, for, for in terms of well, how, how old we were. How old yeah. we were uh-huh. exactly, and and so I wanted to like. Um, That's alarming, and of course you're a flaming homo. Well, yeah, I mean, I'm I am a flaming. I mean, uh, right now, like, it just, if you could describe what I'm wearing, it would probably shock the. Yeah, audience. it's like right out of Key West. Right. It's a, I'm. I was just there last year. I love Key West. Did you buy I that outfit Key there? I bought, I bought this leotard outfit at Key West <laughs> on sale. On sale. Uh, I I'd like a good discount, so you know we share ethnic ethnic. Um, uh, Actually, I, I lost. I don't know why. I'm very poor with money management. I'm I'm not frugal at all. To a fault, um, so something went wrong in my Jewish genetic your makeup. Jewish, your Jewish lineage. Yeah, so I, I end up working with people on purpose who have that, and oftentimes they're not even Jewish. 
um, but they're very aggressive about safeguarding money. Oh, I can't do that myself. So you surround yourself with a kind of a Either Jewish Jews a bubble like, of Jewish yeah, uh, like frugality. Jews. Yeah. And so, I mean, I guess, you know, it's, it, it's interesting, to, just to, the metaphor of you liking to gamble uh, uh, pleased me very much as I was thinking about it, because basically your career is a battle against the house. And so you, and that, and that extends into gambling. I mean, you've, you're like, you're, you've been going up against the establishment kind of and try and the way that they, and, and, and authority at the highest levels and trying to find the little cracks in the system where you can hold them accountable. And, um, so I think it maps really well for to you being a degenerate gambler, um, and not being unafraid of facing the house at the tables. And so I was kind of curious, like, what are the origins of your, of, of your rebellious streak, of your civil libertarian passions? Where did that first creep into your system? And is it related to, I guess, to the family split in some way? Maybe not directly. It might be. I think it's related a lot more to the process of process, trying to process what it meant to be gay in a society that was very hostile toward that. Because my trajectory was first thinking, okay, I didn't really, couldn't articulate it, I was too young to understand what it was, I felt like there was something inside of me that made me bad and dirty and sick and shameful and I needed to hide things all the time because if people discovered the truth, they would realize I was, you know, this diseased, um, bad person. And then as I got a little older and the critical faculties of my brain began to develop, I began trying to interrogate where that judgment came from and who it is who formed it and what validity it had. And so as I began doing that, I began scrutinizing the people in my life who were assigned to be the authority figures, my parents, my teachers, principals, just whatever authority figures were there. They became representative for me of this whole structure that had decreed this judgment. And the more I looked, the more I saw that what was actually broken and dirty and diseased was not me, but them. And from that, and, and then I ultimately came to realize that there was no basis for this judgment and felt betrayed that I had gone through years of punishment for a judgment that was that was baseless. And so that was my first experience with really trying to understand authority was concluding ultimately in a pretty you know, at a pretty young age that there had been this gigantic fraud perpetrated by people who were purporting to be in a position of moral superiority and yet the more you look at them, the more you realize that they were anything but. And I think it was a good eye-opening uh, experience. Okay, so t- corollary questions to that. Um, first, when did you have your first gay awake? Like, when did the, the thought first uh, announce itself to young Glenn that he might be, that, that there is a, a, a man he wants to touch? What is the, what would, do you have a first experience? Not experience, but I mean experience of the idea. I, just, I think it was, it was, it was, uh, a little bit vaguer than that. It was more just kind of a sense of being different for reasons I couldn't quite How, understand. What age, what age would it did the sense? Maybe seven, six, seven, eight. I remember my father, his dream was, you know, that we would, I don't think his dream was that we would become professional athletes, but his dream was that we would, he would be able to coach and like the, and we would be the star players yeah. for him. And so he would take me to this local athletic field and enroll me in baseball and football leagues. 
And I actually didn't dislike them, but I always just felt like a kind of fundamental difference between myself and the other boys mm-hmm. um, for reasons I couldn't really articulate. And then maybe like what, at eight, nine, ten, I started realizing that I was experiencing or kind of getting attracted to boys in a way that you weren't supposed to. That was for whatever reason not, you know, you just see representation all the time in media, in um, commercials and entertainment about how boys and girls are supposed to interact and how boys and boys are supposed to interact in. Yeah. I was finding that, that was not what I was being drawn to. It was just somehow different. And then I think, you know, when you reach puberty and you start becoming sexually, your body becomes sexually active, that's when the realization kicks in because no interpretation is required. It's just a right. very objective metric of who you are and are not attracted to. And I think that was when I started articulating it in that way for the first time. And yeah, unless you're me, in which case, in, in which case you're so disassociated from your, from uh, erotic identifications due to uh, your family situation that it doesn't, you don't even realize that uh, you're a flaming homo until your twenties. But that's, yeah. that's not, that's, that wasn't my experience. That's not, yeah, no, that, but yeah. yours is a much more classic experience. Right. Exactly. Despite the fact that you're younger than I am, your, uh, your experience was like the most of the most like, you know, lifelong blue blood. Okay. You know, I'm not really younger than you. Right? You what, know that you, you, I don't know. You seem like you're younger. I look, I look 28 or 29. Yeah. I mean, um, most would say, yeah, you're like, you know, when you say 34, it's surprising because most people are like, you look 28, 29. What's like, what's exactly. Like, so yeah. people are shocked to find out that I'm old, that old, but I'm actually a little older than that. I'm a little older than you. So I think that was a big part of it too. I think like this is part of why I resent so much especially younger people who have had no experience being gay mm-hmm. or even this LGBTQI with all that, you know, is because... Like A plus, plus I change. I A plus two. The two yeah. is my favorite. I think AOC recently included that. The, um, oh, the, the number two, yeah. Yeah, yeah, so yeah that's the, the two-spirit of, of Native two-spirited. Americans. Right, yeah. yeah. And so she was being very respectful to everybody by including that. So whatever... Why is there no F? They could at least throw an F in there. That's the one. I think they're saving that one. I mean, come on. Um, I remember when they put the B in. Right. And I was resentful toward that. <laughs> right. Right. I remember. Yeah. I mean, I've come around on the B a lot. I mean, I know the B people are bitching about the B, but like now it's like it's such a to, for for there to be a bisexual, even just a nominal bisexual, is such a treat because it it be, it speaks of. It, it's like it's like a tribute to the closet, you know, when you when you see a bisexual. Yeah, I mean, you know, that that's always the assumption is that you know, no men are bisexual and all women are. The but Brazil changes that. If they the Brazilian the B the B, B stands real. for Brazilian. The, the B, B is stands for Brazilian, <laughs> not just for Brazil. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, but uh, I don't know. I just for, I think that what it is is like uh, I'm not saying that. But I didn't think, like, bisexuals didn't have their own struggles or whatever to the extent that all happened or whatever. Let's assume it did. Right. It's not that. It's just that so many of the people claiming it were people, like, were these women who... Yeah, it's all women who were just trying to get some credit. Like, yeah, who, like, had boyfriends. And I'm looking at them and I'm like, who gives a fuck yeah. whether you're bisexual or not? The society is going to treat you and your relationship in exactly yeah. the same way as it treats all opposite sex relationships. Also, no one's ever given a shit about women bisexual bisexual women no matter what well they give a shit about it only to the extent that they love it so much right that they love it even more it's like even more exciting (laughs) women get yeah so I just never felt like the experience was sufficiently in common the way gay men and lesbians are for them to 
deserve this inclusion in this cause to say nothing of all the subsequent letters that have been added. But I guess what I'm saying is even, I think, I know people pay lip service to it, but I actually think the 80s, which is when I came of age, is that, I, you know, a gay boy and advanced. Yeah. In the, in the heat of AIDS. Well, that's why I think, you know, obviously there were, for a long time, the approach to homosexuality was basically to ignore it and occasionally to stigmatize it, but mostly to just ignore it. There were very few representations in the popular culture. There were very few discussions about it politically because the consensus was it's just immoral and wrong. Yeah. So there was no, there was, a, it was just sort of this thing that nobody ever wanted to talk about, which makes it very difficult when yeah. you have this thing inside of you and you, you feel like you can't talk about it because no one talks about it. And this is the thing that you just, you actually, I mean, I remember really wondering whether I was the only person who had this, whether this is, I was the only person to whom this has happened. That's what that does. But in the 80s, it moved from nobody talking about it to everybody talking about it. But the problem was it was being talked about in connection, not anymore with like a spiritual or metaphorical sickness or an emotional or psychological one, but an actual physical sickness. Right. So the only representations you are finally seeing of gay men were, you know, the most terrifying ones possible of emaciated Tom Hanks. Tom Hanks shriveling up in Philadelphia. Yeah, I mean, that was years later when they kind of right. got sympathetic to it. For the first, you know, five or six years, it was just, you know, terror. Ronald Reagan wouldn't even say the word AIDS. There's this uh, really disgusting scene. You can find it on uh, YouTube where some independent reporter was demanding that Larry Speaks, the first press secretary for Ronald Reagan, address this sickness that, mm -hmm. as he was saying, was spreading through the homosexual community. Yeah. And he wanted to address not because he was compassionate or concerned, but right. because he thought it was just so repulsive and he could see that it was going to become something much bigger and there was nothing but this, like, locker room kind of style shaming of him, like, implying that he must be a homosexual for him to be so concerned about this thing no one was interested in. Yeah. So that was the idea of it for the first five or six years. It was just so hideous that no one wanted to mention it. And you would see these, I remember these, these like shriveled up, emaciated, you know, AIDS patients covered with sores where nurses who were petrified of, of catching it because no one knew how it was really transmitted wouldn't even go into the, the, the hospital room. There were those really, I mean, awful stories of partners of dying gay men who had no legal standing and their homophobic families, the homophobic families of the patients would come and deny them any access to the room to see their dying partner, let alone the ability to participate in decision-making. So it was incredibly grim once it finally did get talked about. Yeah. Now, there's another side to that story as well, which is seldom mentioned, which is that the, there were, there were um, forces in the gay community uh, who knew early, like in the early 80s. I was just talking to, uh, I just did an episode with David Horowitz, who was investigating it at the time, before, like while he was in his twilight zone between being a leftist and being conservative. And this was the final straw. They knew what was causing transmission, and it was just they, they were denied. Like, they couldn't. They, they had to be suppressed. I mean, I have to say in their defense that if you're, you know, this is kind of the, you know, the, the gay movement as it exists, like the mythology of the gay movement is it happened, you know, beginning with Stonewall, which by that point was like 12 years earlier where there was any kind of sense of gay activism. I mean, there was right. gay activism before Stonewall, but very isolated and underground. And I think there was a sense that some progress was finally being made in, mm -hmm. in, in making it more acceptable. And so to 
to have to accept the idea that the very defining act of homosexuality, of the way in which men have sex with one another, was now responsible for this incredibly terrifying, contagious disease that was killing people in the worst possible way. Yeah. I mean, I completely understand the instinctive desire to resist that truth. Right. I mean, the sad thing to me, I don't, I don't, and I don't, I, I'm not in any way cavalier about how horrible the whole thing was, no matter how specific the cause is. It's sad to me that this, the fact that the cause was so specific, in retrospect, and even at the time, meant that you could have continued to be gay without doing that one act, which we know what it is. I mean, it's that one act that caused that that real that 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 leads to it pretty much. We were talking about this last night, but um, it's sad as fuck. It's just sad as fuck. And, and you know, like you, there were people silent who knew silently, silently agreeing with the with those who were trying to get the bathhouses shut down in San Francisco in the early '80s. And it's just one of these situations. It's one of the ugliest things ever. But obviously, it marked you as an activist. You're coming of age. I mean, you're coming of age as that's flaming and as yeah. I mean, I, like, was, I didn't immediately jump into AIDS. I mean, into like gay activism or AIDS activism. It was a slower process than that because I still felt like my purpose in life was unrelated to this thing that yeah. had happened to me. Is how I conceived of it. And it yeah. wasn't really only until I got to law school in the early nineties. Where was that? I went you? to NYU oh. and. It's in Washington Square, and so it's extremely close to Cooper Union, which is where the ACT UP meetings used to be held, like the main New York ACT UP, out of which all of this other activism emanated. And I started going to these ACT UP meetings and was transfixed because it was an incredibly vibrant dynamic of these activists who weren't there out of abstract cause, but because they themselves were infected and wanted a, a treatment or a cure and had been furious about the government in action. So it was a very kind of pragmatic political grievance. I have a disease, the government has the capability to treat it, to find a way to understand and, and, and save my life, but is failing to do so. And this anger was very raw, but it also it found expression in this very respectable and like studied and informed way. It wasn't just leftling politics. That was performative. It was, you know, they they understood all of the FDA protocols and they became experts in the science and and virology of HIV. And you know, the villain at the time was Dr. Fauci. That's the volcano. Oh, the that's fantastic. Volcano. What is yeah. that? That's is this is the volcano that's been here ever since they built the hotel. Um, but it's an artificial volcano. Yeah, it's an artificial one that kind of puts on. Did a you see the fire coming out? Yeah. Uh, hopefully they'll do that again. This has been the defining little, uh, the defining uh, emblem of the Mirage. This was used to be all the shit, the Mirage, when it first opened. Yeah, this is like the big, this was like the, yeah. the big most famous hotel, right? This was the most, this was like the coolest one, right right opposite MGM Grand. And it's uh-huh. kind of, when I first came to Vegas, and again, like you, uh, in the sense that my I came with my parents and grandparents at the age of eight. And that's when I fell in love with this place. Totally. Couldn't fucking go to sleep. I, uh-huh. The lights, it seemed, it was the, the food, the 24-hour, the kino at the, where we're waiting for my hot wings, the, the buffet. I discovered coffee for the first time uh-huh. at the MGM buffet. Uh-huh. Lo- fell in love with coffee. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, watching as my parent, as my mom uh, or my grandparents would gamble, would play the slots, play, play blackjack, and I was in. I was in, so I've been here like 30 times, because being in LA, it's a week, it's a, it's a four hour drive, as I was saying. 
Um, but similarly, I was inducted into the. I'm not a. I'm not. Uh, I my main game is betting football and playing poker because I can delude myself into thinking that I'm decent and I'm not playing against the house. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're playing against your fellow table mates. Right, my foe. Yeah, yeah, my table mates. Or if it's or if it's a football, you're playing against a handicapper who set the line. Uh-huh. And you can delude yourself into thinking that you know something he doesn't. Um, which sometimes you do. Like I've I've made some money knowing things they didn't. But I, you know, it's it's interesting. I um. My, I used to lose all the time, and I just wrote that off to bad luck. And my brother, my younger brother, always won. And I remember him having good luck even when we were kids. We would take train trips, and we would play bingo, and he would always win bingo, and I would never ever win. So I wrote it off to that, and then I started actually realizing my brother had a method that I ultimately think is the only one worthwhile, which is that you have to be able to anticipate when you're going to go on a winning streak and make sure that you're betting large amounts when that happens and when you're about to go on a losing streak you have to make sure you're betting the bare minimum because ultimately you're going to win the same number and lose the same number of hands if you sit at a table for a long enough period of time and what will determine whether you end up winning on the whole is not how many times you how many hands you win or lose because that will remain constant, but whether you're betting a lot when you're winning and right. a small amount when you're but losing. But how the fuck do you know I just when you're on a I think street. it requires and this is why I totally blame you for the five hundred dollars I lost at the roulette wheel within a matter of minutes after your arrival was I think that in order to bet you actually have to be able to connect and in some intuitive way that I obviously can't blame with I mean prove with science to just the energy of the the room and the universe and, and what's likely to happen and just you have to kind of sense and feel what and you were is told about to happen and because you were there and had broken my I felt like this kind of machine that has these receptors that can connect to the broader universe and they were blocked because they had to focus its their attention on my conversation with you and as a result I lost the ability to anticipate which numbers were going to come in and I started betting on numbers that in fact had no chance to come in as a result of your presence and as soon as you left I was able to cleanse my spirit of what you had contaminated it with and I returned to the blackjack table and reconnected to the universe Mm -hmm. without your interference there and I was able to anticipate when I would win and lose and I immediately earned back the money that you had caused me to lose and I felt much better about the world and myself and, and you. And that's why they call you Chakra Khan, because you're such a vibes-based operation. <laughs> yeah. um, and, 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 you know, my point of view is, and I understand that I was an asteroid that kind of just crashed into your yeah, perfectly you aligned thing. situation yes, at the roulette table. Yep. Right. But my feeling is, connecting to the universe, I mean... What's the big deal? Like, is it really all that it's cooked up to be being connected and at one with the universe? Because I don't look at this universe as the most, you know, attractive thing to be at one. No, but I it like is to be at odds with. to be able to anticipate the future, especially if you're currently in a casino. Right. You have- so I feel like that is a, a value that I prefer to have rather than lose. But should you have... Should it should it have transpired that you hit your number, which was again? I told you you picked the stupidest number. You should have been sticking to your number thirteen. It was coming up, one at, time after time. You should have stuck straight in between the, the age of consent debate. Came up 13 to 18. At one point during your presence, well, there. I was there for like literally two rolls before. That's how quickly you made that, that you, money. You gave up. You know, I'm an acquired taste. I will. I will initially. I'm an asteroid that comes in and it crashes and everything. Oh, Chernobyl. Oh, God. There's stuff in the air. But then, 
my particles settle, and suddenly the quality of life gets better. How much would I have had to lose at the roulette table? You could afford. You could have afforded a little bit of a bankroll before giving up on the idea of the filthy Armenian role. Okay. After I told Anthony, I was like, "Wow, he really is the filthy Armenian." (laughs) There's no. And then even when. Uh, he suggested that we resume our discussion by returning to gambling. I said, I'm never, ever going to gamble again. You have to give me more of a chance than that. For, okay, here's the problem. I didn't. I wasn't gambling with you, so it's not a fair... I was just there because I, we just, I wasn't... Act, if I had my money on the table alongside you, then I feel like it's a different... We're talking a different... I know, uh, but the other thing which, is, like, I, you know, I, don't, I think I mentioned before, my dream is to sit at the blackjack table... For 16 hours straight. Without uttering a single word. I love the fact that you communicate with the dealer only through hand gestures. I feel like no reason whatsoever to have any kind of... You don't like saying, hit me? Or what if it's for, a really hot dealer? For the other player, yeah. like you, what if the dealer is so hot? You're not going to say hit me if the dealer is hot. I'm saying, obviously, if the dealer is hot, that changes the calculus. Yes. Here they have um, all old women wearing gigantic masks <laughs> over their face. Yes, that, yes that is an issue. That's a problem. They've got a lot of coolers in the lineup. They had a lot of coolers in the lineup. I could tell there's this one table where there's this Asian ice cooler just by herself as a dealer right now This downstairs. No one's going near that table. And the other tables are all packed, but that one table is empty. Um, I feel like I feel like the dealer has a little bit more to do with it than the than the uh, proximity to the nearest Armenian. But you know, we, there's room to to experiment. So, how do you deal with uh, male beauty now in your current in your in your current days? I mean, when you encounter it, has it gotten any easier to like? Because I'm just walking around the casino here. I was waiting to come up, so I was walking around for the last seven hours, and I'm just observing hot people gambling, and I'm thinking, you know. This hasn't gotten any easier to just observe hot people gambling, unappro- you know, unattainable hot people. How does it? How does? How does? How does that? Well, it's interesting. First of all, I know this is like a cliche to say, but people who have seen photos know that I mean it. I really do believe that, at least for me, the like pinnacle of male beauty is the person I end up marrying, and I've been with for seventeen years. Like I'm just saying, like in terms of just pure aesthetic beauty, mm. I feel like it's impossible for any man to be hotter or better looking than my husband, David. So I feel like I it just I'm always around extreme male beauty in that way, and I feel like that helps me navigate it when I have to be near it, but can't really do anything about it. Mm-hmm. And I also it's interesting. I I feel like the casino, and I mean every casino I've ever been in, this is true for, is for whatever reason the most like ungay, heterosexual heavy place. I don't think I've ever had any kind of like connection or cruising experience or anything in a casino just it seems like gay people hate casinos they do they're afraid of numbers and they're afraid of they're afraid of the house they're afraid of the house Which they're not battling the house. politics is the most pathetic thing ever right. it's always just very like establishment um appeasing and currying favor with with those in power i do think there's kind of a fear of competition but i don't know i think it's more just like what is gay in a casino? It's about like booze and cocktail waitresses and you know betting on sports and cards and it's just it really seems antithetical to gay culture. I mean, you I know, mean, you and I both like it. I so, feel like yeah. it, and, and and we don't feel unerotic. I mean, there is a, there is one thing where it's like when you're in a gambling mode, you're not actually horny because uh, your your energy is all. You're not horny. You're not hungry. You're not thirsty. You're like. You're gambling. Exactly. It takes up all exactly. the action. Yeah, exactly. Action in your exactly. Mind. Yeah. No, I mean that's absolutely true. Is 
I don't like, I never, I almost never drink while I'm gambling um, because I don't want that to, I'm only there to do the gambling. I'm not there yeah. to have chit chat or, um, but you know, look around and, and see what guys are hot. I'm really there. I, I find the, the gambling experience just all consuming and intense, which is what I like about it. And I think you're right. I think that's where most of the energy goes. Maybe that's the reason. But it's, I don't know. I, I've very rarely seen gay men. The, uh, you know, queers are, are are allergic. To, this is not a very gay. I mean, despite its history as being like a gay escape in the 30s and 40s with Liberace playing at the pianos, um, uh, it's not a very gay place. Well, like, that unless there's a gay weekend, even then. Even then, yeah. I mean, they had this. Uh, Chip, they have this Chippendale show and right. I think we saw it for it and the guys were very hot and then we walked by and they were out on the street without their shirts on and we were like yeah they're hot and we talked about maybe going to see the Chippendale show but we realized I pointed out like it's not going to be any gay men it's going to be totally heterosexual they're going to be just these like midwestern Drunk women like screeching and <laughs> you know acting like they're so uh, in love with the dancers because yeah. that's the kind of fun they're supposed to have and they're going to be flirting with the women and we're going to get like nauseated and it's yeah. just going to be like an orgy of heterosexuality. Up. Yeah. And yeah. it's going to be frustrating and gross. And, you know, that was why we decided not to go. Yeah. It's too bad. Yeah. It's, you know, it's like, it's like, it's almost like your best. And there's like the, the nearest gate bar is off strip and somewhere. And like, I, you know, I've looked it up and it's like not, there's no like, there's nothing in the strip that's, 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 uh, uh, flame friendly. But yeah, I mean, you know, you have to have, my position is that you have to find your own individual vantage point on life, and I—that's uh, why I, I love Vegas, regardless of the fact that queers are afraid of gambling and numbers and money, and like they like to go off and they're you know they like safer spaces. Yeah, I mean it's not like as well, and I speak from personal experience that if you really are interested in finding you know whatever gay experience you want, it's everything is available here in Las Vegas, including that. Sure, it's just not readily available. It's not. Yeah, it would be nice if there was a if there was a more cultivated you know if we're just being unambitious and just being like sticking to the Vegas traditions a nicely well cultivated um, you know gay prostitution situation here would be, be I feel like that's what attracted people here in the 30s and 40s but I don't but it's like it's too weird I don't know I don't I don't feel like that it's like sense. the middle of the desert and I don't know it just seems very. It just seems very antithetical to gay, it gay just, sensibility to me for reasons I can't really explain, but feel very strongly. Yeah, no, it, it's definitely about Palm Springs. Palm Springs. Yeah. That's hella gay. But yeah, Palm Springs. I mean, I'm, I'm saying like desert and. Yeah, that's true, but I feel like Palm Springs seems very adjacent to Los Angeles. You know, just that drive down whatever that highway is that I've taken many times. Right, not for the, a long the time, 10. but. The ten. Yeah, so the ten from LA down to Palm Springs. Yeah. It's like or you could take minutes. the sixties. You could take the sixty, or you could take the ten. Depends. They're about the same length. Yeah. Eventually, you get on the ten, and the ten will take you all the way to Florida. Eventually. Yeah, I've stopped in Palm Springs and didn't go any further. It's Palm, that, but Palm Springs is fun, actually. I've, I mean, I have a my family has a place there, so I've been going. I, I first thought it was just a retirement place with no, no interest whatsoever. Then when I finally got a good taste a taste of the fun Palm Springs, I've become I've, I've become a fan. And I mean, the heat, I find the heat the very it's invigorating. It's I love yeah. that heat. I feel like they, that very dry heat is... Takes something off your chest. Yeah, it just it feels like it's, it's burning the toxins out of you. Um, the houses are beautiful. Mid-century. Um, the yeah, and just the whole aesthetic of Palm Springs I really like. And that yeah. I can see easily why it's incredibly gay they have a very fun poker vibe too if you're uh, for, 
not interested to you, not interesting to you, but the Agua Caliente, excuse me, casino, the poker, the poker is wild and loose in Palm Springs because you've got a bunch of retirees, a lot of them with money, a lot of them with a few marbles loose. Like there was this one Rams kicker who was just clearly off his rockers, and they're betting loose and wild, and it's like one of the wildest poker rooms in 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 the country probably. Um, and Vegas poker, not that you care, but Vegas poker is conservative relatively because it's a bunch of locals who come play a lot, uh-huh. and you know if you get the drunk. Tourists, that's great. You're going to win money. But if you get the locals, they're all very conservative, and it's like the opposite of what you would expect, you know. Well, I think, I mean, I, yeah, that ends up, I, it's interesting, I like that, you know, the people's wealth ends up affecting their gambling behavior because of the sense that it's only fun if you're betting amounts that will hurt for you to lose, that you're actually afraid to lose, you don't want to lose, or conversely, it's only fun if you win an amount that actually is a meaningful amount to you. And I'm thankful that that is not my... Uh, need I don't really I find I, I'm noticing this time I'm betting amounts that I don't really care about that don't have an effect on my life and are uh, trivial um, but I still care as much like I still get just as happy right, you get I just as much of a charge yeah I just yeah. like taking their money it's so fun you feel like you just like some kind of conquest yeah and conversely if I lose even you know like $250 or something which is an amount I can splurge on completely moronic things without thinking twice. Right. I I find it incredibly irritating and like yeah. glum. And yeah. uh, so I'm I'm glad I'm not one of those people like Phil Mickelson or uh, Michael Jordan or Ben Affleck. You know, people have so much wealth but come here and bet millions of dollars because it's the only way it becomes fun for them. Right. Um, I I've come to the conclusion. Now my vices are in the more like blame, I could blame myself category when it comes to like bet sports betting and poker. Less I, I don't I've learned not to like if I get a bad hand, if I lose because I have a bad hand because I got a bad beat in the last card and da 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 uh-huh. I'm okay with that. Uh-huh. What I'm not okay with is being stupid and losing. Like and I yeah, blame well, myself. so that's so funny because I felt so much shame because oftentimes I walk away from a table if I'm sitting with people who are doing stupid things. Not because it actually adversely affects you, because it's just as likely to help you. Yeah, it did, there's you. no difference. Yeah. The problem is, it just you sit there. You know, if you do lose after they do something stupid, you blame feeling you. like they're to blame, and yeah. you're constantly calculating which cards should have come up yeah. if you lose. Yeah. Have they not been stupid? So I was at a table just like an hour and a half ago, and I need to confess this to expunge the the shame I'm feeling. And I was the person who was sitting. I was like at the last one right before the dealer overturns her cards and starts doing the damage that she does and there was this hot guy there he was betting a lot of money and we were kind of on a winning streak at the table so everybody had a huge amount mm-hmm. bet and she had some shitty number like a four or five and I had soft 18 the a7 I think it was the a7 and I hit when I really sh- no what was the deal I didn't shot? hit I didn't, didn't hit. hit but what was the I don't remember shot? exactly what I did but it was one of those situations where it's hard to remember because so I feel like it's hard to remember like the those things that are hard to yeah the, the soft the soft yeah. numbers are the hardest ones to remember when you're supposed to hit and I haven't played in a while the point being I'm pretty sure I'm not entirely sure I, I don't remember the deals but I'm pretty sure I you either hit erroneously or didn't or hit did, erroneously yeah. and whatever happened the dealer turned over and just like stuck a dagger into everyone's heart by pulling a 20 and he like angrily got up and laughed now he might have been angry because he had just lost like $600 in one hand but I yeah. felt like he was angry at me for having been the one the, the like the douchebag at the table who didn't know it's what we were doing yeah. 
And uh, yeah, so but this is this is also a metaphor of how America turns on Americans turn on each other. You see, the problem here it's not that you were stupid, and it's not it's that the game is rigged, and the house has it rigged. Ultimately, it doesn't matter that you may have done the incorrect strategic play in this particular case. It's the same deal. You guys are fucked because. The odds are stacked against you, and eventually we find reasons to blame each other instead of focusing our efforts on the house and on the house's yeah, rules. Yeah, that's a very good metaphor. I agree with that. Um, and in fact, I find myself, this is a new experience, but I've kind of been finding the people at the table who are with me a source of pity, and it's kind of burning the, the, oh, the emotions shit. for me. Like yeah. I feel like they're betting more than they should. They yes. all seem very downtrodden. Then when they do lose, they seem like just on the verge of some kind of depression. Yeah. And I feel like it is this broader metaphor for how the society is functioning, and I feel the solidarity with them. <laughs> no, you know, it's, it, it's never a good feel when the table resembles the line at the DMV. You know what I mean? Yeah, like you exactly. want That's why I like it when I like seeing like, you know, my visions of Vegas as a kid where uh, I there would be the people still dressed nice in the 90s when they would go to the casino. Like it was still considered like if you're going to go to Vegas, you need to bring dress shoes, you need to bring a jacket, you need to bring like, you know, be right, a because there was that kind of it was like flying. It was like the idea is that you're responsible to make it a little bit chic in the way you're presenting yourself as you yeah. do it. And that's Part, been obviously lost. And that's been totally lost. And it's also that is I mean, the fan, the real fantasy being sold here is not that you're going to win money; it's not that you're going to lose money. Um, obviously, people have the fantasy of winning money part, as part of it, but it's really that they can act like a bigwig while they're for a weekend. They can act like a king; like they'll be treated nicely. People will serve them drinks for free. They're sitting at the table, and for three days, that that this is they are something that yeah, they they're are not the center of the life. attention to, and you know they're being they eat lavishly. Yeah, they, yeah, yeah, exactly. And they're surrounded by this kind of glitz and glamour. Yeah. Um, they can tip their way to anything. They can buy anything. You know, they can all this. Like I, I know this especially from all because t- obviously tons of Armenians come here for weekends. That makes sense. Time. I can all definitely understand why gays don't come here, and I can understand why Armenians, Armenians do. Yeah, because yeah. they're we're a very ungay people. You know, I totally like, agree. We're like, like gay Armenian is almost an oxymoron to me. It, it's it's quite it's quite a, a, a weird bastard concoction, uh, you know, which is why which is another reason why um, you know the filth has been thrust upon me. Um, but so I was I ran into somebody named John Stalliano downstairs. Perhaps you're familiar with him. I'm not. Evil so. Angel Films. Uh-huh. He was the defendant in the apparently the last suitcase against an obscenity case in the United States in 2010 uh-huh. against his porno company. I think I might have written about this. I'm guessing you would have. That was it a guy who was who was he he would be like abusive to women, but in the context of. Or he would have, like, people defecate on the women for money on film, and then he got prosecuted for obscenity? Is that that case? It's... I don't... He didn't tell me the details of what the... Of what the fetishes in the movies that they targeted for I believe I wrote about this because the women who were the quote-unquote victims were all people who, by their own accounts, consented to... Engaging in this behavior in exchange for a pay that they thought was worth it. Right. And... It was abusive, but only in the sense that if you watch a fiction film and there's a villain who's shooting and beating people, they're also abusive. It's not actually right. abusive. It's 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 fictitiously abusive for the enjoyment of, course, of others. Yeah. Right. And all the people were actresses, not actually getting right. abused. 
they were consenting to all of that behavior, but because more or less, largely on the left, had decided that this had crossed some sort of line, the Obama administration and the Justice Department under Obama ended up prosecuting um, the maker of these films for obscenity. Yeah, for as a, a criminal, the, it's, a, it's like the, that's the it's crazy that there was an obscenity case. I <laughs> could be confusing two different cases. I don't think so. That I recall pretty vividly writing about that case. Okay, what's the, what's the name? Staliano, S T A G N A L I O. I think I must have written about it when I was at Salon, but check to see if, if that is like. Yeah, I'm guessing you must have because it, it, it was. It was that was right the thing that they made that they were using to claim it across legal and not just legal but moral lines as well was that the women were defecated on. Oh, big deal. But, I, you know, there are people who do that willingly. Yeah. I so, think of many myself. Yeah, probably most of your friends and family. Right. So, I to, to criminalize that... My friends. Exactly. My, my friends. Your friends in Canada. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, you know, I think... Um, I don't remember. I think... Yeah, I could see him then becoming... You know, a lot of... I, I had... Uh, when I was young, where I went to school with this kid whose parents started a test prep company called College Bound, and they got extremely rich until the Justice Department prosecuted them for securities fraud when the stock started declining. College found? College Bound. College Bound. Would it be? I believe that was the name of it. Was it mean that they were headed to college, or were they college people who were 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 like bondage scenes? Could be both. People like who didn't want to go to college but were forced to and therefore were bound by it, but also people bound for college. And they would, you know, help these rich kids prep for the entrance exams, like the SAT and Mm -hmm. PSAT and stuff and LSAT. And it became a huge company and they got very, very wealthy until they got convicted of of major security fraud and they became hardcore anti-government libertarians. They had been just like standard conservative pro-Israel Zionist Jews in upper middle class South Florida, but then they started coming to all these kinds of conferences furious about the treatment of the government. I I recently interviewed uh, this Sri Lankan billionaire who, when you would criticize the Obama Justice Department for failing to prosecute the people responsible for the Wall Street fraud in 2008, Mm -hmm. would point to him because they prosecuted him for insider trading charges that had nothing to do with the Wall Street collapse and he was convicted and sentenced to prison for eight years and wrote a book that's very kind of waving that libertarian criminal justice reform uh, banner about how prosecutors have unconstrained power and he's right about that I just find it interesting that people uh, don't really see the full extent of it until they're confronted with it personally yeah yeah, that that happens a lot Um, uh, well I mean because the inclination is like law and order law and order and you kind of assume based on TV that uh, that they're the good guys, um, and yeah, when it when it hits you, it hits really. Yeah, I mean the hard. power to put people into a cage for years, right? When your career would benefit from, especially you know, if you target certain people, certain famous people, it'll you, you literally have an incentive to over prosecute. Yeah, and then you have you know politicians. There's never really a political benefit to advocating greater leniency because whenever there's a crime, you get blamed for it. So the political incentive is always to prove that you're harsher and harsher and harsher on criminals. And that creates this really unholy brew where the laws get more and more repressive for people accused of crimes and people are convicted. At the same time, the incentive scheme is even higher for people to then abuse those laws 
to put as many people as possible in a cage. But do you so? But do you agree? Well, that do you agree that the the I mean, there's this character now called the Soros DA that uh-huh. everyone is worked up about because crime is skyrocketing, and it seems like anytime there's a violent crime, criminals out doesn't even get charged. Uh, but if they're you know like in many major cities such as mine, I mean, I'm surrounded. It's just it's becoming bad. It's becoming like real bad, uh-huh. and there's going to have to be a tightening of of law enforcement at the crime at the at the violent crime level, obviously. And there are people who don't want to do that. How are you kind of observing this current? I mean, a lot of your friends, newfound friends on the right, are highly concerned. Yeah, I mean, first of all, I think there's two issues. The, if you if you look at the fact that the U.S incarcerates a greater percentage of its population than any other country in the world. There may be one or two now that have passed it, but it, if not, it's at the, if, if, if so, it's still at the very top. If not, it's, it's been number one for a long time. And also imprisons more of its population by raw numbers than any country in the world as well, even though China and India are three or four times size, uh, the populations are three and four uh, times larger. But their ethnicity variance is not as diverse. I mean, there, those countries. True, it's there are some, there, true, but there are some countries where, I mean, 25% of the world's prison population is found on U.S. soil, even though the United States is only 5% of the world's population. Right. So but when these are, I'm saying these are not, we, we, the, the, these are like single variable, like, the, that's just one, that's just. But right, I'm right. Just, I mean, I, so I, like, I wrote a book on this um, in 2011, uh, so it's been something I've studied for a long time. It's not just the numbers, it's also. There's crimes that you will go to prison for for far longer periods of time in the United States than you will in other countries. A lot of it is nonviolent drug offenses, and right. especially, you know, in in state and local prisons where people probably shouldn't be in prison at all. Um, so I think there's an over incarceration problem, but that doesn't mean that some people who deserve to be put into prison are also being let out. I but I think to deny that there's a problem when you look at those numbers. Um, I think is misguided. So I understand the impulse to try and reform the criminal justice system. It's a failure of our country that so many people are in prison, millions of people. I think the problem is the bigger problem about all you know people perceiving that the streets are less safe because there's so many homeless people and addicts and the like, is that just in general, Western culture is failing to provide humans with what they need to be psychologically fulfilled. That's why there's so much of an increase in addiction and alcoholism and depressive and anxiety disorders and suicide. All these mental health pathologies are worsening rapidly and people have no more economic security and no more economic future and that's why there's so many more homeless people living on the streets. Things are getting more aggressive, less secure, less orderly and the like. And so I don't know that the solution is actually to just round people up even further and throw them into cages. I think the question is, why is our society producing so much of this maladjusted behavior? That is a question for sure. That to me is that's the. Qu- I mean, you you but, can I mean, just but, say but, it. But we can't matter. wait around for an answer. But while somebody's like, while somebody's breaking into your home, you can't wait around for an answer as to why did society. But the, the problem though here? is, like, you throw these people in prison. They're addicts. Um, they have untreated mental disorders. At some point, you got to let them out. Well, I think, unless you want to just no, keep them there forever, I, 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 and then you let yeah. them out. And, and I feel like this is a, a, something that's worsening the problem. I know it seems like if they're in prison, you're going to be safer, and you, the more you round up, if they're in prison, the safer. But as long as you're produ- having a society that's producing all kinds of sort of nihilism about the future, you're going to have this kind of maladaptive behavior. 
and to pe- be purely punitive in response, I don't know. That seems pretty well, pro-establishment to me. I lo- well, I mean, it's not, it's not about what's ideal. It's more like it's more what's possible. What's what do you have to? What, what's what else is there to do? I like I like the types of ideas that Michael Schellenberger has been propagating in terms of the homeless issue. Um, but it does still seem like force would be required to, let's say, I've been reading about these ideas actually for from writers going back for like a hundred years, like designating an entire you know region for people who are incapable of supporting themselves and I mean, who are addicted to drugs, mentally ill, whatever it is. They're whoever's out in the street in front of my apartment right now and who is absolutely incapable of and any anything other than that, you know. Which ninety nine percent of them are, one, uh, like say one percent are temporarily whatever. Ninety nine percent are fucked up big time, and so it does seem like there there's some form of society that can, or some form of like, uh, you know, um, kind of like an alternate shadow society where they can go, they can be taken care of, they can get food and da 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 da. That they can be separate. Like, a, like a leper colony. A leper colony. Like exactly. Throw all the lepers uh, throw into the like lepers a into kind of like a camp. You could call it a camp. You could call it a camp where people are concentrating yeah, on exactly. solutions. Mm-hmm. And and so, it, yes, uh, you know, um, if to coin a phrase, a concentration camp for solutions. I mean, I those are, but it still requires. People can them. work, can find freedom. <laughs> they can work. find in freedom. They can find that they are, the heating always works. The, the ovens, the ovens work. Um, I would like uh, everyone to. No, no, no. Know but, that that's when I got but, off the train but, but shortly you, before it arrived. You got off the, the train. Oh, okay. Comment. Okay, the train. But let me just say. No, but <laughs> no, but I do think no. A society where you can like it's basically like a, I mean a colony where people can you know they can garden they can do whatever they're capable of doing to try to like actually feel. I mean it's a it's a it's it's still a, a form of jail, but it's not jail. It's fu- it's not it's a, it's, a, it's it's fun just a, jail. It's fun jail, and it's one where literally like arts and crafts. It's rehab. No, but, but with, you know it's rehab. Yeah, but with that, that, that's not. But rehab it needs to be rehab, and this is the thing. But we have is very possible. That's but uh, well, so I in two thousand and eight, I or two thousand and seven, I was doing an event at the Cato Institute, and they came up to me and said, "There's a law in Portugal that almost nobody knows about that was enacted in two thousand, right? That decriminalized all drugs." And I was like, "Are you really? I'd, I'd never heard of that before. I was an advocate of decriminalization or legalization, but I never, I didn't know that." And they said, "Yeah, no, very few people know about it, and there's been no research on it. And we'd like you to go to." Portugal and, and the EU and, and do research and see how that law is going. It's now seven or eight years old. So I said, yeah, that sounds fascinating. I'd love to do that. And I went with no preconceptions. I mean, I hadn't known about this law. I didn't know how it was working, if it was working. And I got to Portugal, which is a very socially conservative country. They, it's not like Luxembourg or Monaco or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, the Catholic Church played a very uh, important role in in the thought process and political culture of that country. They abortions illegal. LGBT rights took a long time to to, to be recognized. Socially conservative country, and the impetus for trying decriminalization in two thousand was desperation. They like spent the nineties the way like San Francisco and other cities now are with addicts just all strewn throughout the streets of of, of Lisbon, heroin addicts and the like. And they found that throwing people in prison just wasn't working. So it's like. They changed not because of some ideological or good Samaritan impulse, just out of desperation, basically, because yeah. what they were doing, criminalization, was not working. They wanted to legalize, but when you're a small country, you actually have to care about what bigger countries say. And the U.S. said, you were not allowing you to legalize. Um, there's international trafficking concerns. So they were allowed to decriminalize. Mm-hmm. So it was still against the law, technically, but you couldn't go to prison if you, if you just 
stuck in heroin needle in your arm in, in Lisbon, they'll come and take you and give you a citation requiring you to go to kind of a tribunal of like a social worker, a, a, a doctor, and a lawyer, and they'll give you like an assignment to go get rehab. And so the idea is we're not going to spend our resources anymore on having the police arrest people and having the court system process them on having the jails having to take care of them. Instead, all that money will be freed up and we'll be able to spend it instead on methadone clinics and offering uh, rehab um, and therapy to people who are addicts in order to encourage them to get off drugs. And not only did that work for that reason, the resource question, but also one of the things they found that they didn't even anticipate was it changed the dynamic between the citizenry and the government. If you are doing something you know the government is going to want to come in arrest you for has told you is a crime you're going to fear the government you're not going to be receptive to anything they have to say because you're going to see them as their as your enemy but once you change that and we the government saying we're not going to punish you anymore we're going to offer you things that will help you with this problem you have in your life the government starts to become almost like an ally someone you trust more someone you're willing to more to listen to and so it changed the dynamic between the citizenry and the government and every single metric after decriminalization every single one including just drug usage got better. Drug-related deaths and overdoses, people living on the street, um, people stealing because of, of drug uh, addiction, just the rate of addiction itself, um, every drug-related disease, people just started taking drugs less because they changed from a punitive mindset to one of healthcare. And I understand what you're saying, which is you can't, people you know, are threatened now who are you know, citizens minding their business are going to work and you have to do something about the imminent proximate problem. But we've been criminalizing and throwing people in prison for, we're, it's not like we I have George Soros. I think, I'm not saying prison's a solution. I don't, I, don't, I don't think that throwing them into prison is the solution. I think that there, there needs to be a creative, the kind that we were talking about. There needs to be some version of that for people who are truly hopeless. What if they don't want it? Like you just force it on well, them? That, well, what else can you do though? Otherwise you're going to, they're like literally blocking my apartment. The girls have to, uh, young women uh, have to, have to uh, hurdle and deal with crazy people getting to the, my apartment building. I mean, you what could you provide them housing as well. Like that's they're what not, you could do. Well, but th- th- that's never worked in California. They have housing. They don't go because, because most, because the housing has, a, you have to have a certain, standards of behavior for the housing not to become a complete fucking nightmare. Right. And they're not willing to not do drugs. So what are you going to do? I mean... I mean, they're, they're addicts. I mean, they need treatment. Like, they, it would be like if they had some, you know, severe mental disease that was causing them to have psychotic breaks, you would want to treat them. You would want to give them medication to make them healthier citizens. I don't want to mimic... I don't want to be like the... Uh, this is something that Schellenberger can explain better than I can, so I don't want to like... Yeah, no, I've had this exchange know, with him before yeah. when he said I used to agree with decriminalization of the Portugal model, but now I think it's uh, unworkable. So I know people I don't are frustrated, yeah. um, and I'm not even saying that I necessarily think it would be this panacea. I'm just saying I, what, what, I, what I kind of recoil... Uh, uh, away from is this idea that we don't we're a society where a bunch of like leftist prosecutors don't put people in prison because they don't believe in a punitive model we're a very punitive society we, we absolutely believe in incarceration this has been the way that you know politicians have proved their toughness going back to Richard Nixon through Bill Clinton who left the campaign trail to go right. oversee executions right. proving that he was willing to kill criminals you know the idea of like law and order politics has been something that has completely taken hold in our society and states and federal levels are swimming in law enforcement money and we imprison people at enormous rate. So, you know, I, I guess I'm just kind of wary of this, this discourse that says, yeah, because 
Philadelphia and San Francisco have like more liberal prosecutors, it somehow means the country doesn't put people in jail enough and is too tolerant of criminals. Well, you know the case. You know the case that just happened in New York, where that guy, the bodega at the bodega yeah, guy, uh-huh. uh, uh, was defending himself and stabbed, and he's being charged. Right. You know. I mean, I think that's part of it, and and it's a quote unquote Soros DA. I mean, this is just a phrase that has become popular. I don't. I don't like to subscribe to phrases until I actually know what the fuck I'm talking about. But. Um, but you know that's just an example of the words. But there, like but I'm just, it. but I just want to point out that what you're complaining about there is overzealousness by the prosecutor. You're, you're complaining that the prosecutor has overcharged this person. True, he, but the wrong person. But the other, but the well, the other, the other person is the deceased. other person is deceased. But his girlfriend also attacked the uh, the uh-huh. bodega, and she's, I think, I think she's she's not being charged at all. Right. She, the prosecutor's claiming that she was defending. Yeah, her. I've seen that case. I mean, I mean, it seems like a clear case of self defense. Whether you should be able to plunge a knife into someone's neck before they've even actually hit you when they're threatening to, I guess you can debate that. But to me, it seems like clear self-defense. Right. So there's clearly a political motivation into the way it's being charged. It's- For sure. I mean, there, there's the, the reaction to over-incarceration was to install in liberal cities um, sort of leftist-ish prosecutors who, but you know, the model for prosecutors have long been like people like Kamala Harris, who built her career all the way to the White House by imprisoning huge numbers of people. She is, she's really a word. But isn't that she the like kind of prosecutor that you like? Well, no, I, I'm, I'm, I'm just asking You're just neutral. Here. You're just a journalist I'm just, I'm with just no journalist. opinions. You're just probing I've, to understand what I've ever seen an opinion form. And, <laughs> I'm just probing. I'm just probing what you're, you know, because just the facts, ma'am. That's I'm just the facts, like. ma'am. I am a member of the press, <laughs> she, and I've got my fedora here with my, the rest of my outfit I got from the West. Notebook, my little notebook. My little notebook. They yes. all walk around with for some My reason. little notebook, my pencil. The notebook has the, 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 yeah, those you know, the swirly, the swirly what are they called? Spirally things. Yeah. I am an old school... Ben Hecht uh, type of journalist, as you know, and no, but I mean, I'm 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 just trying to because your your navigation has been really interesting the last several years. You become a ha- complete household name um, over the last five years because you maintained your uh, skepticism of the national security state, even mm-hmm. though Donald J. Trump was in office, was right. in office and became its number one target mm-hmm. and its number one victim on incessantly for the last you know up to up to this very day. And including his supporters who are currently on trial for going to a protest on January 6th. Right. And and so, you know, um, I'm generally curious. I also want to get back to the porn thing because I think we, we skipped over something. But I'm generally curious about how you're... you're, you're you know, you, had, you're, you wrote a book about how, the, how horrible Republicans are 20 years ago. I mean, you know, I'm being... Yeah, like during Bush and Cheney. During Bush and Cheney. And, and lately you're... Obviously, the, the leftists consider you a far right wing Nazi extremist. Yeah, now. Uh-huh. and and Republicans, whether they agree with you or not, are not are <laughs> wouldn't call you any such thing, and they wouldn't call you a stupid uh, uh, diaper baby either, red diaper baby. So I'm curious if your view of the of the kind of people that become conservative and the kind of people that become lefties has altered in any way, or if you just think this is a cycle that is now currently you know fallen in a certain part of the roulette wheel a certain number and it's going to fall in another one next time uh like how have you kind of processed the bigger picture of yeah i mean when i first started understanding right and left politics it was you know shortly after the 60s and into the 80s basically the 80s but it was all formed by that recent historical context where the institutions of authority tended to be conservative both in their 
sensibility, but also in their alignment with that political ideology. And to be on the left meant that you were defiant of institutional authority and opposed to it and wanted to work to undermine and subvert it rather than strengthen and preserve it. Right. And so that was to the extent that there was an alignment between my kind of personality and personal ethos and politics, it was clearly to be more defiant of and you, no authority. Gay, and the gay factor. Yeah, all of that. I mean, that, you know, that going through that process, as I explained earlier, that caused me to kind of um, conclude that authority was often an error and kind of a fraud. And so I was drawn to that. I remember, you know, in 1985, Sinead O'Connor went on Saturday Night Live and took about a picture of the Pope and burned it. And all the conservatives were so indignant that she would show such disrespect to this institution of power and everybody on the left was applauding it because that they thought was what we needed more of was this kind of irreverence to authority. Right. That was just in like beyond the specific political positions, that was kind of the spirit of each side. Now it was much more attractive to left-wing politics as a result. And in the eighties as well, there was, you know, the sexual moralizers like Jerry Falwell and Pat right. Robertson, Parker Gore. Yeah, I mean, that was, you know, that was once the Clintons brought, you know, the Democratic Party for the right and started focusing on, like, school uniforms and, and all right. that and became more socially conservative on purpose. But I'm not even, like, before the Clintons, you know, and in the, not in the sexy 80s. not school uniforms either. That no, was no, no. They were designed to be very kind of just, like, uh, prude. Prudies, American pastoral uniforms, pitchfork, uh, pitchfork included. Yeah. So, you know, and now I just think... Uh, it's a very Gen X timeline. It's also, know, like, yeah. I think that, like, institutions of authority have aligned with American liberalism. The cultural norms are very much consistent with the liberal political agenda, and the outcasts have become people on the right. And those are where the dissidents lie. Those are the people who find that they're thrown out of polite society, who are censored from the Internet... And especially because of Trump and his own personal grievances toward the U.S. security state, enormous amounts of space opened up on the right for the first time, but very substantial space to have antipathy toward the CIA and the NSA and the FBI and the military industrial complex and the deep state, uh, which is a term that only leftist academics used until right. you know, 2016 <laughs> and suddenly people on the right are ranting and raving against the deep state. Yeah. And by the same token... And you're a conspiracy theorist from... If you say the word, the phrase deep state... Even though, you know, yeah. for... Like I said, for decades, it was elemental to understanding American power. Right. I mean, the fact that there's a permanent power faction in Washington that operates in the dark without being altered by the outcome of democratic elections, if you don't understand that, if you see that as a crazy conspiracy theory, you have no credibility that opine in any way on American politics... Because there's nothing more fundamental than the existence value, whatever you want to call it. You can call it whatever you want. You don't have to call it the deep state, but that's a term that leftist academics created for it because that was something that people thought only existed in places like Turkey where the military or Egypt, where the military would be a safeguard against the democratic process going wrong. Right. That's clearly what we have here as well. And, um, you know, at, at exactly when the right became more skeptical of these agencies, the left became much more... Uh, respectful of them and appreciative of them and trusting in them and this polling data shows this that the FBI and the CIA are far more popular among self-identified Democrats than Republicans well I miss NBC and uh, CNN are just the CIA like uh, yeah they're just, there's network. barely anybody who works on those on, on their payroll at this point who wasn't at one time like a former CIA ghoul or a you know NSA spy or a FBI operative 
um, or a Pentagon chief. And so this is what liberal culture now venerates, are the very institutions of power and authority that when I first became politically aware, the left was designed to combat, not to revere. Right. And this is what has now changed not more only than anything. Yeah, revering and filleting at this point. So, now, so, how, so yeah, where do you, where do you like... Uh, would you look? Here's enough. Another similar question, which is, do, given that the left is now on in reverence uh, of is revering these these, the, it seems like they've never been more powerful. Given also technology, right? Yeah, it, it seems like the the the, net, the deep state has never been more powerful. Has never been more completely in control of a certain part of the media. Um, maybe that's a myth. Maybe they they were always that much in control, but it just doesn't seem like no. It's, it's true for two reasons related. One is. The idea that Trump was this unprecedented, singular threat to all that's good and decent about American democracy and that the only relevant metric is are you with Trump or are you against them? Yeah. him? And if you're against him, you're um, on the side of the good. And obviously those security state agencies were clearly against Trump from the beginning for right. valid and rational reasons. And what were the became, valid reasons that they were against Well, that he was questioning their dogma. Oh, that right. Valid, from, in place valid from, their from their perspective. Right, right, yeah, right. I mean, they, they were right to see him as a threat when he's going around saying, why do we have NATO? And, right. You know, why why do we care about overthrowing Assad in Syria? And, and, you know, why is that our business to go around changing governments around the world? I mean, if you're the CIA and you're hearing that, or you're hearing him on Twitter mocking the shit out of them for having gotten Iraq wrong, you're going to find him to be, you know, Major a menace. Enemy. Yeah, and they treated him as such. They attempted to subvert and undermine his democracy. But for someone who believes that Trump was this Hitler-like figure, you're glad, you're you're grateful for the CIA doing that and the FBI doing all their dirty arts but aimed at your political enemy. That's one reason, just because of Trump. The other, though, that I think people often overlook is the fact that they succeeded, the Democrats did, in restoring Russia in the imagination of Americans as this scary, hateful, odious villain that was also threatening all good things and decent about American political life along with their puppet and asset, Donald Trump. And that turned them into jingoists and militarists. And when you are you know, fixated on this foreign threat, you are going to start to embrace the institutions that are constructed to combat those foreign threats. Right. The military, the CIA the whole U.S. security state, the weapons manufacturers. Like it's 1939 all over again. Or 1957, you know, where the McCarthy craze is leading everyone to uh, conclude that the minute you question American war policy in any way, it must mean that you're acting with some loyalty to the Kremlin. Right. And that was the script they rejuvenated almost word for word. And, you know, as someone steeped in kind of the civil libertarian history of the 20th century, the darkest moment, one of the darkest moments was the Red Scare. And I remember, I'll never forget, like the first time I heard that Hillary Clinton had in mid-2016, where she decided to make this McCarthy theme central to her campaign against Trump. And they unleashed this campaign ad with all this sinister music and pictures of like the Kremlin marching People across the screen. Tetris. Yeah, like what does the Kremlin have on Donald Trump and what is the relationship? And it sounded like a J. Edgar Hoover, Joseph McCarthy love child, right. you know? Like that's what the Democratic Party And became. if you think I'm dressed weird now, imagine what the J. Edgar Hoover McCarthy love child is, is, is looking like. Well, look at the, the, you see it. Look at the go on Twitter and look at the Democratic Party partisans and, and you'll see right. what they look like. Oh, yeah. It's, it's, um, it's, it's, it's a shocking sight. Are you able to – because yeah. – 
you know, we've all had to dance around this given our career, you know, what our company, the company we keep and so on. Like, are you able to say that you flat out? I'm listening. Yeah, that, that, that you like Donald Trump now, because as far as I'm like, if I'm being objective, or any of us is being objective, there has been no U.S. president since World War Two, And then of course people are going to say the Kennedys, but I don't buy it. Um, who's taken on the military-industrial complex with anywhere close to the same both you know, aggressiveness and also effectiveness in the sense that he's avoided so many conflicts that could have been long quagmires in North Korea. He got the Abraham Accords signed, which is, you know, mm-hmm. had its, like all these things that nobody thought possible and that nobody would have even tried to do. He did criminal justice reform. I he mean, did I that, which, thanks to Kim Kardashian. Like, no, I don't know, but like, what, what are we what are we doing there? What, is, it, is it good? Is it working? I mean, it made, it, I think it took off some of the edges of um, the excessively punitive Federal. When it comes to the drug shit, level, I'm 100 percent Yeah, I mean there was, you know, but know. it wasn't it wasn't revolutionary, but it was a step in the right direction. Right. But you know, I mean, the, he worked with the ACLU on that, and 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 this bipartisan uh, coalition. I think, um, is you know, do I like Trump or not? I think what I would say is we both know that he's funny, and we both love his 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 performance. Let's he, be honest. I mean, he's hilarious. I mean, there's no denying that. And he also, you know, really enjoys upsetting and. You know, showing contempt for and tweet and and sort of tweaking exactly the people who most deserve it right. in a way that is also funny but also productive. Right. And um, he also, whether intentionally or not, ushered in a whole variety of very positive changes to right wing politics, including skepticism over these agencies, the questioning whether we should be fighting wars. He ran in the twenty sixteen Republican primary against traditional Republican orthodoxy on foreign policy and right. economic policy yeah. against the Bush Cheney wars but also against the Reagan the idea of Reaganomics that we should be revering corporations and empowering corporations that that will benefit the American worker he understood that that was just simply a lie like a fraud that Republicans have been telling themselves and so to transform millions of people within the conservative movement in the United States into these hardcore anti-militarists, anti-war isolationists, anti-corporatists, people who were just questioning all forms of authoritarian uh, credibility and, and, and power, I think is obviously beneficial. So we could, so you would say he is, he, he's been the most effective on that front of any president in your lifetime? Well, also, he did, clearly, he was really the only one who tried. I mean, like, your lifetime is very brief, 30 years, but, but, yeah. but yeah, still. Yeah, I mean, I'm only, yeah, but I mean, I've read some history, like, going back to the 70s right. and, and stuff, and my understanding is that, from those history books, is that it's been many decades since we had an American president who did not involve the United States in a new war, and yeah. Trump. Right. Succeeded in doing that, and not only succeeded, but like he literally avoided some clear, obvious Attempts possible to push war. Him in. Yeah, yeah including like regime change in Venezuela. He got rid of Bolton when he realized that that was um, far too significant of an undertaking. Yeah, he avoided conflict with North Korea and Iran when people were claiming he was uh, on the verge of of, of provoking it. Um, yeah, just in general, you know, further he, shit in Syria. Kind yeah, of. I mean, the CIA kind of just ignored him, and the Wall Street Journal and the Washington Post had stories where officials were boasting of the fact that they kind of just ignored his orders. <laughs> they would lie and say that they had, you know, followed his troop withdrawal orders when they really just shifted 
the battalions over a town or two. Um, so there was a lot of that going on, like right. subversion of the kind of chain of command in the democratic process by the same people who were insisting that they were safeguarding norms. Right. They were cheering the fact that these generals who were supposedly the adults in the room were going to undermine the elected presidents. <laughs> yeah, and thinking yeah. that they were defending some you, kind elected of by Elected by Putin, though. Elected by the Russians, as we know. Yeah. As are you. I mean, you're not very far down the line of their Russian puppet. In the Russian puppet theater, Glenn Greenwald, the Glenn Greenwald puppet is, is prominently... Uh, uh, displayed and they they accuse you of being a puppet of Putin. Going back to your your Snowden. But this is what's so amazing about this is if if you just go and look at the you know history of what McCarthy did, which I mean I got obsessed with that many times reading books about it and and watching the hearings themselves. That's all it was was you would have liberals who would question Cold War dogma, whether we should really be fighting these proxy wars with the Soviet Union, whether the Soviet Union was really the level of threat that American government officials were constantly claiming, and just for questioning whether we ought to be constantly pursuing the Soviet Union as this hardened enemy, people were, their loyalties were, were called into question publicly. Their reputations were destroyed. They were accused of being Kremlin agents. This is supposed to be one of the most shameful moments in American history, and so to watch that framework be so blatantly revitalized where all you have to do is yeah. yeah I mean there were because actually, there were actual Kremlin agents yeah well, there, and there was a communist movement inside the yeah, United States and they were literally answering to Moscow I yeah mean. I mean you know McCarthy went crazy with thinking that every person who wasn't fully on board with Maximus Cold War posture was a Kremlin asset but right. that's what you know there are no communists basically in the United States now but I right. mean like Aid Kremlin agents. Well, what's a, what is even a what is even, there is no is back then it both was more accurate and also you could say well if you're a communist there was an ideology associated with with the Soviet Union which was communism and now there is no ideology associated with Russia. Right, they're vaguely I guess like right wing on some social issues. It's all bullshit. I, I know vaguely right wing yeah, on social issues like abortion and. They're vaguely right, Russian. And, That's what they are. Yeah, they're exactly, fucking exactly. Russian. They're, yeah, That's they're basically all it is. yeah, exactly. They're basically like where the United States was in the nineteen nineties. There's like a couple of social issues. Um and that's about they're, it. But they have much lean, lean, more lenient abortion uh, standards. I've yeah, exactly. I think, yeah, then, then a lot of states are about to enact. I think, um, you know, I think people do need an enemy. I think they they crave an enemy. I think we're yeah. very tribal. Uh, we're a very tribal species. We think in terms of tribe. And so if a member of your tribe seems to be taking the side of the enemy tribe... Almost naturally, the human brain is going to be very suspicious of that person, you know, very hostile to them, right. and they're going to start to get paranoid that within the tribe there's disloyalty. That seems like a very instinctive human behavior that's being deliberately stoked all the time in order to keep people in fear. Why has Ta- uh, N- Nicholas, quote unquote, Nicholas Nassim Taleb? grown such a hair up his ass about you lately? I think because he and Snowden had some kind of like brush up Are you spending on? and he's got obsessed with maligning Snowden as a Russian agent and I guess at some point it just spilled over to me who he had always said very good things about over the years I always kind of just ignored him I never found him particularly interesting either positively or negatively um, but yeah like it was just out of the blue and it wasn't anything that I did well he also became fanatically 
militaristic about Ukraine. That that was and to the fact that and I became one of the voices. Was he? Was he's, he? Like, he's been a total lockdown. Uh, he's been a total. Uh, uh, you know, live about COVID from the very beginning. Yeah, so every step of the way. Yeah, I mean, so you put those two things together. I think the Ukraine thing in particular really got him riled up because you know his accusation against Snowden is that Snowden's a fraud because he's a Russian agent. And this is the other thing. I this this is. I mean, I've said this many times. I'm probably going to say it until the day that I die because I just can't believe how cheap propaganda works. I get why sophisticated propaganda does, but you know, I remember it was part of this at the time. I know exactly what happened firsthand, but. Snowden's plan when he left Hong Kong was to travel from Hong Kong to, to Moscow mm-hmm. because in order to get to Latin America, when the U.S. government was desperate to get their hands on him, the only way for him to safely do that was to pass through Cuba because obviously the Americans are limited in what they can do in Cuba in a way right. they're not almost anywhere else in the world. And same with Russia as well. So that's why he chose that route to go from Moscow to Havana onto either Ecuador or Bolivia where he would have gotten asylum. And the Cubans through WikiLeaks had officially guaranteed him safe passage through Cuba, meaning they weren't going to nab him and turn him over to the Americans. Right. And by first invalidating his passport on the way from Hong Kong to Russia, they'd actually done it slightly before. They wanted the authorities in Hong Kong to keep him there and they told him the Hong Kong authorities did, told the United States to fuck off. In large part because Snowden was very clever because he had leaked a story to the South China Sea about how the NSA was spying on the Chinese government, their text messages, which at the time is how they communicated. And he became like a national hero in China. And China did not want this problem of having to arrest Snowden with their population so angry toward the United States and happy about Snowden and what he revealed and then having to either let him go or turn him over. So they told Hong Kong, just let him out, even though his passport was invalidated by then. He made it, that's why he made it to Moscow. And what prevented him from getting on the, there's the volcano again. What prevented him from getting to Moscow, uh, getting out of Moscow was that not only had they invalidated his passport, but by this point they called Cuba. Yeah. And at, the, at that time in 2013, Cuba wanted this embargo lifted. And they told the Cubans, if you allow Snowden to pass through, you can forget any attempt at a diplomatic solution. We'll have no political capital in Washington. Washington's going to be angry at you if I let Snowden pass through. And then they broke books, Ben Rhodes did and others, boasting about how successful they were in bullying the Cubans to do this without realizing that it exposes the lie that they've told over and over and over again, which is that Snowden is likely a Russian agent because he chose to stay in Russia. They wrote books about how he was desperate to get out and they were so happy and proud that they prevented him from leaving and simultaneously used his presence in Russia that they forced him to have in order to call into question his loyalty. And this is what uh, Talib has been doing as well, is using the fact that he's in Russia to suggest that he's some kind of a Kremlin agent and the fact that I then became outspoken against the war in in the U.S. role in, in Ukraine kind of reinforced that when the whole time it's based on this easily provable myth right now just to just to give uh, just because i'm just asking questions there obviously are agents for foreign governments among us right yeah of course so yeah and so i'm wondering and it's fair to i mean you know i'm not going to claim that there aren't um it's it's a fair question to ask when you know and i know talib's thing is like is like well how 
it's not a fair, it's not fair criticism. But he's like, well, if you only criticize the U.S. but you don't criticize its enemy, you're you're doing the enemy's work because we're not you know you're not you're not uh, you're not analyzing the deep state of Russia. You're analyzing the deep state of the United right. States. It's not your job to analyze the deep state of Russia, and it's not something that you would probably be good at doing because you would have no ability to change anything in places where you have no platform or you don't speak the language where you're not known you know, you have no readership where you have no audience where you have no claim to any kind of de- demand any kind of change i mean i can sit around talking about the bad things in russia and peru and like vietnam and you know indonesia all i want and i can feel really good about myself for doing so but i haven't actually accomplished anything i'm not going to cause any changes in those societies on the other side of the world where i have no connection to that society so it's worthless it's ethically worthless to sit around and do it. The things that we're responsible for and that we can change are what our own government does. And so, of course, that's what we should right. focus on most. What, what, what would a Russian agent even like? What would you, what, who would you suspect of being a Russian agent? Not necessarily, I'm not saying to, to throw a name out there, but like, who, like, what would that actually be? Like, who, what would, that is my question. The real I mean, I, you know, I do think they use, like, attractive women to lure male politicians or other so people's AOC. secrets. AOC. Yeah, like I think AOC is probably... Is she attractive? Is that what you're implying? Well, I know that well. I mean, some people think she is. I'm not one. If I... If I there was a gentleman at Capitol this week who... Uh, the, the, found him, and, she, and, and he will never hear the end of it. She cannot... She can never take a fucking compliment. She did take the compliment at the time, though. She went over to him and kind of posed for a selfie. And, and then I think only afterwards, afterwards realized how she would be able to... Um, politically use that to her advantage, her, her advantage. so these anyway, monsters you created Glenn you were a fan of hers at one point weren't you and a great booster I mean she she was very she's politically skillful and she said all the things that I needed to hear to make me convinced that she I mean go watch that interview you won't recognize that person so the hot bimbos that they that they implant install for who who like like you talking about like Fox News bimbos or I think just to like get you know no they like dispatch like that Maria Burchima woman who was active in the N- in the NRA um, Mar- Maria Buchina she was then prosecuted for being a unregistered Russian right. agent um, I'm sure that's the kind of thing that they do they send people to gather information and. Right. Um, to lure people on their side, but the Cold War really has been over for, you know, thirty years, um, forty years, uh, actually thirty-five years, and I don't think that the Russians care all that much or believe that they're capable of. You know, the Russians are a regional power. That's what Obama used to always point out when he was pressured why he wasn't doing more to confront them over Ukraine or Syria, right. and then especially after the 2016 election. And that's what he kept emphasizing was you're obsessed with this country whose economy is the size of Italy's that is at best a regional power. They're not some powerhouse, and you're turning them into that. And a lot of uh, liberal uh, opponents of Putin were constantly complaining during Russiagate that they were creating this image of Putin that was perfectly consistent with what he wanted he wants, the public yeah. to believe about him. That he right. masterminds the, master the world, world yeah. and he can plant U.S. presidents in there like like their figurines. Uh, we have to go soon because we have our show. Yes, and I have a, I have, to, I have a flight. But to, I have to, No, we're the ones who had to go first. You were just pretending you also have something to My do. flight is, yeah, I mean, my flight is uh, voluntary. Exactly. I can always just stay here. You could here. change it. I'm sure you would if we had more time. Um, That's the point. I mean... <laughs> 
<laughs> Look at this. He's trying to force me to say that I'm a little bitch who would no. just change all my plans. I was just saying. To get yeah. just an extra no, minute of did that thing company. where like, somebody is like, we were like, we have to go. And you're like, I have to go too. I have things to do also. <laughs> well, I'm sorry, but it's I'm, I have a fucking flight. I have to I have to save face. You made me wait downstairs while you got you into your chakra. You owe me $500. Interview, and I was <laughs> I want downstairs money. losing money <laughs> waiting for you. I want my money. I will, pay, I will spend. I would like to put $20 on the number 13 in roulette. And take a picture by the. Okay, let's go down and do that. But it's two quick, two real quick. Yeah. The Intercept. I want to ask you about the Intercept because I I started a college, an alternative paper in college with my friend, and we had a charter, where which gave us the right to detonate the paper in the future when we after we graduated if it ever went the wrong way. And so I'm just wondering what the like, what what are your regrets, if any, with how the fucking Intercept. Honestly, I think, like, I was a little bit too humble about, like, what I wanted it to be, this collaborative effort, instead of taking the control that I probably could have demanded. Mm -hmm. Although I remember, you know, early on when the the idea was we were going to have The Intercept and then we had, for First Look Media, the parent company, funded by Pierre Omidyar, had gotten Matt Taibbi to leave Rolling Stone to come and work, and he was going to create this kind of sister publication called The Racket that was going to be satirical, kind of mm-hmm. like the old spy magazine vibe. Um, and Matt came in and demanded this level of control that I had purposely relinquished, where he said, no, I, I don't want this just built around me and built on the back of my reputation. I want to have full managerial and editorial authority to control right. it, to hire people, to run the entire thing. But the problem is that is a miserable job to have to run an entity inside of a corporation where you're spending huge amounts of your time answering to accountants and like CFOs about budget issues and HR about hiring issues and constantly having to justify. So before the racket even ever got off the ground, Matt was at war with the management mm-hmm. and left. And it was a huge fiasco. We had, you know, it was a very high publicity hire. And before this thing, this publication, even got into its first episode, he quit and mm-hmm. kind of, you know, denounced First Look on his way out. And that was what I wanted to avoid was I knew I wanted to devote most of my time and attention not to like budget meetings and manager stuff and running things right. I'm not even good at it and I don't have an interest in, but to my journalism. So I negotiated for the right to be able to choose the editor, but I wasn't going to be the editor. And I didn't have the right to fire the editor, just to choose the editor. And that is was already a kind of relinquishment of authority and control well beyond what most people assume that I had. Mm-hmm. So I, I had a loud voice for the first few years. People respected the fact that it was obviously being built around my name and my work and respected what it was that I want. But each year that went by, and I think this is common a common kind of cleavage between founders and managers is at some point the people who are working there also feel like they have a stake in what is being built Mm -hmm. and they feel like they have the autonomy and and you have to give them some autonomy too because you can't get professionals who are just going to come to be mouthpieces for me like people who want their own editorial independence as well and more and more the kind of mission of The Intercept moved away from what the vision was Trump accelerated that greatly because that was really what Cause them to really re-question their 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 editorial posture was we had done a lot of negative reporting about Hillary Clinton. I remember with the day that she lost on election night, people were practically weeping inside our Slack channel. And at some point, people started saying we ought to publicly apologize 
for the role that we played because we had done our jobs of reporting on Hillary Clinton as well as Donald Trump. Yeah. And that's when I knew things were, had really gone off track. But my idea was as long as no one fucks with my work, as long as I'm still given the resources I need to go do the things that I want to do the way I want to do them, I can swallow the rest of the crap around me. And they did largely do that, especially through the reporting we were doing at The Intercept Brazil, which is incredibly expensive. I needed security and law firms and um, all kinds of support. And, and, and they stood behind us the whole time. So that let me kind of make peace with the fact that they were off on a completely different track than the one I had envisioned when we created it. But then it got to the point where it came to my door as well when they right. tried to prevent me from doing. But you hired. You do. ended up hiring a schmuck or something. I mean, ultimately, right? Like, because you, you chose the editor. She was. She was. She's. A, she just today actually left the Intercept to go become editor in chief of the Guardian U.S. Betsy Reed. She was. A, she's a very smart woman. She is a very good editor. The problem is, is that she spent her entire life in left liberal political circles in right. New York and liberal arts colleges. And once Trump got elected, there was no more political space. You had to constantly do one thing and one thing only, which is every day wake up and prove that you were devoted to opposing right. him. And that corrupted the entire journalistic mission of The Intercept. Sad. What's your last question? My last question is about whether uh, is about, I heard a rumor that you once owned a porn company. This is, what happened was this got uh, first asked about and raised during the Snowden reporting, like out of nowhere, both the New York Times and the New York Daily News mm -hmm. called me on exactly the same day or emailed <laughs> me on the same day saying that they had magically discovered all these like <laughs> secrets from my past. Right. So it's I amazing that two newspapers both got the I, same information. I think Talib found it on a Google search probably. Yeah, that's maybe. Um, but no, what happened was... Um, in like 2001, when I was getting kind of already a little bit tired of practicing law, um, I created uh, with a friend of mine this consulting company and we consulted for a bunch of different companies, companies that I like a product that we were interested in, we would help them grow. And one of them um, that came to us was a company that had pornography. And our contract with all these places was, we'll have a 50% stake in whatever you're doing. We'll get 50% of the increased profits above where you were at when you came to us. And in return, we'll guide and help your business. I really had no... Lucasfilms? What was the porn company? It was, uh, no, it wasn't Lucasfilms. It was, uh, I forget the name of the company. Um, but you know, I never had any, like my, my friend was like a producer in Hollywood. He had produced films mm -hmm. and I was mostly doing like the legal work for it, the like kind of financial work, but you know, like a lot of like Marriott or Hilton or right. whatever, I did benefit and receive profits from, you know, porn, the sale of pornography. Right. And your advice um, was something like more furry, a little bit more in the furry to business. Like, yeah, you know, like, little, like vary it up, very, you know, right. And so, um, like, very shortly thereafter, I think it was, like, a, maybe a year, a year and a half at the most, I sold my stake to my partner, um, and he then took that porn company and has grown it into this gigantic thing. But, yeah, it came out during the Snowden reporting. I mean, I, 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 you know, they wanted to know, like, did I ever, in, was I ever involved in the production of it? And I right. would say, if I had been, I'd be very proud to talk about yeah. that. I think <laughs> pornography is a good and healthy thing when it's consensual and, and done well. Um, but no, I hadn't. And so I don't know why like Twitter has recently rediscovered this. I think because the liberals and, and leftists who ignored it at the time have decided that they can use it against me. So it's just been kind of well, re yeah. resuscitated. Part of this, uh, it's probably has to do also with the current popularity of groomer and sex panic. And Well, that's what's so ironic to me that whenever I hear the left complaining about how conservatives are creating this discourse that gay men are predators and pedophiles and groomers and when that's what I, the, only one, the only people I've ever heard that from are people on the left. And it's been the 
they've been doing it for the last 10 years nonstop. Yeah, I mean, well, the whole, like, kind of, you know, new moral sensibility is that any age gap is predatory. Um, and so the left has become extremely moralistic about judging the private affairs of, of adults well, in a way that used to be the province of the right. I mean, when, when, as soon as you, as soon as you, uh, you, you begin to morally criminalize speech, the next step is... Yeah, I mean, that's, it's the, these are authoritarians, and that's what they do. They want to control every aspect of your life. Um, well, this is great. Like, yes. you want to go downstairs? I want to go and, down and, and do get some to, roulette. Do you figure out the ticket issue? No, I know. I'm just going to bet one. I'm just going to bet once on number 13. You're going to bet 20? Yeah, I'll bet 20. Okay, I'll bet 11. I'll bet here. Just get 40 and put, like, let's put yeah. 20 on... Let's go by the let's go by the wheel. Take a pick of us by the wheel. Alright, okay. 13. 13. 13. You got it an 11? You're on 11? I'm both on 11. 13. 13! 19. The fly. 